Welcome to episode 27 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs from cloudy and muggy DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, joining me in the co-host here this week from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in Tempe, Arizona. It is the always loose Eric Longenhagen. and Eric, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, hanging out at the kitchen island slash standing desk, which is... <laughs> Like I have a a desk in an actual room that's called the office, and I work out here at the kitchen island like seventy percent of the time. <laughs> do you? And you do you just stand there and work the whole time? Not the whole time. Like there are two high top chairs here as well, but it definitely is a mix of I'm up and down through most of the day, and then I have like. From my vantage, I have the two TVs in the living room, which if there's day baseball, are just on with day baseball, which is right. not a feature of the office. Wait, you, so you have two TVs in your living room? Yeah, there was one. There was a second TV put in the living room. When I moved in here, there was already a TV on the wall, and I was just like, all right, this is bigger and better than any TV that I have, so it's just going to stay there. Okay. Uh, it seemed like the people who were here before me just decided it was going to be too big a pain in the ass to take this TV down off the mount. Um, yep. And they left it here, and so I took my smaller TV and just put it on a small coffee table next to the giant TV. So you can double up when you need to. And I just double up, yeah. It's like during college baseball season, I thought, you know, I'll just do this now. I need to have it like this for now. And uh, like I'm an adult man, so the second TV will come down and only be put up on special occasions going forward. And no, there's just there are two TVs on in the living room all the time, basically. Uh, when there are sports going on, and and that's how I live now. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, if I do that, I just I just use my iPad as a second screen. I think um, this is the this would never have happened before the divorce. This would have I been a gigantic no. <laughs> I this is one, one of the benefits of divorce. I have the one TV that the room kind of revolves around. As a, as as I've stated before, my my midlife crisis was audio visual, so it's a very nice TV. Um, We'll talk about TV uh, a little bit later, but we're going to talk about baseball, obviously. Our, our special guest this episode will be Lindsay Adler, talking to us about the resurgent New York Yankees, um, the resurgent New York Yankees fan base, and her new career taking meme portraits of Yankees players. Uh, we'll get into our musical guest. We've been very pop-oriented lately. It's been very poppy and happy, and so we're playing doom metal today with the, the great band Heave. Uh, we'll talk about them. We'll go through your emails. We'll catch up with Eric. We'll have a little moment of culture and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it'll be a full show. You're talking about baseball, Eric? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start. Uh, the first story that uh, is, is we got to talk about it. Don't like talking about it. Got to talk about it, um, which is there was a round of CBA talks uh, that seemed to have happened in person. Uh, I believe it said they took place in Denver, Colorado uh, and the and Major League Baseball made a proposal to the union 
Um, there are obviously a lot of parts of that proposal we don't know about. Um, and we also need to understand that that is just this is just a first shot across the bow and no one's saying this is what it's going to be. And, and I'm quite sure this is not what it's going to be. Mm. Uh, but the, the important basic to know here is the what they threw across was the concept of a, a $100 million salary floor, not a cap, but a floor, a minimum salary uh, expenses per year of $100 million, which is a figure I think seven or eight teams are below right now. Um but the CBT levels, the kind of, um, to be fair, soft cap, uh, but treated often by teams as a hard cap, um, the levels, instead of beginning at what is currently $210 million, would begin at $180 million. So it would lower uh, that, that kind of cap. Um, this is the kind of thing that might play well in the media, and at times has already with with people kind of supporting the owners um and saying well this is just more money it forces these teams to spend more money and you can't tank and all that stuff and we want to get rid of that and this is a good thing um but if you do the math this is pure salary suppression this is this you if you do the math and add it all up um and assume that assume that teams would treat the 180 as they have treated 210 in the past there's no reason not to not to see that um at the end of the day there would be less money spent on salaries this is this is i feel like this is and again, it's it's August nineteenth, and you should expect nothing but non-starters in terms of of CBA negotiations on August nineteenth. But this this feels like a non-starter. Yeah, uh, it's I haven't like sat and done the math. I know that there are people who have done some crude, rudimentary math and like tweeted some stuff about where payrolls are right now and how that looks compared to what this theoretical setup would be. Uh, there are still teams would still tank. By the way, uh, if they had a hundred million dollar salary floor, they would just eat bad contracts and continue right. to be as bad as they are. Like they would trade for Miguel Cabrera, right? Yeah. Uh, so there are just ways of doing the competitive spectrum thing while also meeting this hundred million dollar bar. Um, that you know, this is not going to prevent the 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 Sam Hinkie style tanking that we've seen, like from Baltimore, basically. Um, and uh, so, yeah, like, I don't think that the, the parody thing is not real. Um, every <laughs> economic study that's been done on sports, competitiveness, parody, competitive balance, however you want to put it, has found that just like teams that spend more tend to win. Yeah. Uh, it's not players, complicated. The good players tend to go where they're paid the most and help those teams win. There will still be a couple of teams who blow through the theoretical $180 million threshold and tank, like just plow over everybody. The Dodgers aren't going to go, you know, let's cut payroll. Uh, they can just look in the couch cushions of the clubhouse and find 180 million bucks there. So, um, so yeah, I think that there, it's interesting when you sit and talk about like the interdynamics between the owners and the, the players association on their own, what sort of, conflicts might exist in those parties on their own, uh, mm. let alone before they're discussing things with one another. So like if I'm Steve Cohen, uh, when I'm not being extremely annoying, I might like think, hey, this is great for me who I just want to blow through this $180 million cap, whereas this might take team that's currently at 205 down to $180 million, um, and further separate me from the rest of the pack. 
uh, and then there might be some like there's probably something very specific about certain players who are looking at the way they and their agents are going to anticipate the financial structure of baseball to change that might benefit some of them. Um, but I can't conceive of who that might be. But yeah, like if you look at the way some of the other sports that are hard capped or soft capped, like the NBA contract rules are very. Yeah, complex. I was actually surprised. I don't, I don't follow other sports, but I, I, one of the articles I was reading about this, someone said baseball is the only major American sport without a salary cap. And I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, there are ways of circumventing it in all the sports, like in the mm. NBA. Uh, if you retain your own player, you can exceed the cap. So, like, you can gotcha. go way over the salary cap if you're signing your own guy who's, like, a restricted free agent or whatever. But um, And then there are, like, trade exceptions that exist. It's it's The NBA contract law is very complex. Um, but, yeah, like... The dynamics between the players in the NBA are like you have your max and super max players who are names that Kevin's heard of. And then you have like there's the mid-level exception, which is termed that way. Like this is another way to get around the cap. Like every year you just have a mid-level, mid-level exception. That's like a contract you can offer a player at the at a certain amount uh, so that you can sign like an okay rotation player basically. Maybe someone who – starts for a bad team and every team just gets one basically. Right. Uh, and like the mid level exception is something like 8 million and the supermax guys are making like well over 20 million annually. Mm-hmm. And so like the NBA mid level contract is less than like comfortably less than half of what the guys at the top of the pay scale are making. Um, yeah. And we've talked about this in the past, how like, you know, whatever you want, the baseball equivalent of that has disappeared in recent years where it's, you know, it's right. people making 25 and people making two. Like the, the three times eight contract just doesn't exist anymore. It does for yeah. like some, some relieves, but for position players, like the three times eight just non-existent. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. So here's an interesting, uh, like comparable to what I think MLB would like things to look like. Um, and Bill James has tweeted about this in the past where, Basically, the players are all replaceable, that it's the laundry and the logos that are what have cachet in the public and ultimately make the money. And if like Mike Trout went away tomorrow, it really wouldn't matter all that much that like the baseball players could be replaced by scabs and people would still go see the Yankees play if they were winning. Do you think that's true? No, I think that's bullshit. No, I, I, no, I, I, yes, Yankees, but you, you know. You go to a Yankees game and and you see four thousand Aaron Judge jerseys. You go to you know an Angels game and you see Otani and Trout jerseys. Like they, yes, they love their team, but they love the players on that team. I don't think that's true at all. And I think we've seen that in the past with with you know work lockouts and and brief times of of scab games. Like I don't think that's true at all. I I think the the best thing the NBA ever did, obviously, was to market their stars as opposed to their teams. And I think that's something baseball has kind of leaned into over the past few years to prove it's not true at all. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't want that. I want you to be correct about this, but I'm not sure that. Not sure. Okay. Not sure. I think that if the Yankees, if we just sliced the big league rosters off of every organization and then the Yankees three-hole hitter tomorrow is just, you know, Trey Ambergy, if they're still at the top of the 
AL East and they're fighting for a pennant in September, I think the ballpark is still full and that you'll just see, you know, Hoy Park jerseys. Mm. <laughs> uh, That's an interesting thought. My other, th- my other question about this was just, and this is just like a mechanics thing that I just don't know. Cause like, you know, the, what's been reported has been, um, I don't want to crush anybody here, but what's been reported is, is what's been leaked by major league baseball. You know, they're, they're the ones trying to control the narrative here. Um, that the union doesn't really kind of reveal these kind of things. Um, and there's a variety of, of very good reasons for that. But on the hundred million dollar floor, if you're sitting around on February 12th and camp starts tomorrow and players come in for their physicals and everything in spring and you're sitting at 92 million, what do you uh, like? Or do you have to go? Hmm. Assigned Tim Fedorovich to a one-year, eight million dollar deal to get to a right. hundred. Not to pick on Tim, so I, you know, I've, I've negotiated a contract with Tim Fedorovich, and he's a really good dude. But like, is, do you have, is, how does this work? Like, if you're at ninety-two, what does baseball force you to do? And are, are there penalties if you don't get there? And you know, do you have to find someone for eight million dollars? Do you have to pay into some? bucket right. that gets redistributed and you figure oh well if i just put eight million dollars in the bucket then i'll get a 30th of that back or whatever right and or that if was I'm also- a small market team i'll get a larger percentage of it back and, and some people are reporting that seemed to be part of it on the reversal it was like the, the taxes on that people pay over the 180 help finance the 100 million i'm like why is that necessary because i every team has 100 million dollars don't kid yourself yeah like don't don't even act like they don't. No one should cry poor here. They all have at least hundred million dollars in salary and actually much more. Um, it's all very weird. Uh, so, like we're talking about the CBA on August nineteenth. Um, we've said this before, but I'll say it again. The CBA expires on December first. Um, I don't like the fact that I feel like I'm going to be talking and writing about this for a while, but it feels like I am. I have no reason to think that's not going to happen. Yeah, I guess I, you know, my, my approach will be to try to lean hard into amateur content, uh, in the, yeah, and there's still do. tons of baseball. There's still amateur, the minors still go on if yeah. there's a, if there's a, and, and again, like it's important to note that it expires on December 1st. Um, obviously there's no major league baseball until, um, February 14th or so, which is when spring training camps tend to open. Um, so you do have a two and a half month window. Um, where yes, there's a, a lockout, and that's what will happen. If if the CBA expires, the players will be locked out. It is, uh, and I've said this before, it is a a legal maneuver as opposed to kind of an act of aggression. Um, but if that happens, there's also like there's a transaction lock, if you will. Like you can't go sign free agents, you can't make trades, you can't do any of that stuff. All that stuff's kind right. of just sitting. Um. But they're really, if this happens and the CBA expires, which I really think is going to happen, there's kind of no leverage on either side or any reason to go sit down and talk on December 3rd. You know what I mean? Um, like, it's going to take a while. And I don't think, you know, like, I would doubt that they even sit down again until mid-January or so. Gosh, yeah. The last time we did this, I guess that this is the way it played out. But yeah. But yeah, it's stuff like this tends to go to the to the wire uh, for whatever reason. I just think it's like people's nature. Um, but yeah, I think that if we've learned anything about the commissioner, that this is what he was brought in to do. Like he was brought in to take a club to the players' union. It's why he was hired. It's like what his background is is in basically. So so yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this is. 
this is the starting point. I don't I don't think that this is anywhere close to what the end point will be, but because of the way these operate, the players union will have to like their arm will be twisted into giving a bunch of stuff up to move it away from this mm-hmm. initial place, I think. And we've talked about what those things will be in the past. And a lot of it will be uh, on the, the you know, hurt amateur players, basically, an international draft. Uh, hard-capped uh, slots for the domestic draft seems pretty likely to me, too. Um, they'll probably allow, like, draft pick trading or something like that as a, as a means of... Uh, affording teams some sort of flexibility when it comes to picking players. Yeah, for sure. But, um, but yeah, so that's where my brain goes initially. And then I assume that the, the outcry about minor league pay will, will yield something else too that, that I don't, I don't even know if MLB's done the math, right? Like where they're just like, well, if we pay minor leaguers now that there are a few of them, this, uh, and but you know ask for this much back from the players in terms of whatever the the competitive balance tax threshold is or what have you uh that we still come out ahead but you know look like we're look at all the stuff like we gave the players in you know the media narrative is going to be uh interesting to sift through because when you do sit and line everything up just on sheer number of things like MLB is probably going to be able to sit and say, look what we did for all the pre-arb players and their salaries right. and the minor leaguers. And like, it's a lot of individual smaller things, but the big uh, overarching They're, financial right. picture, I think they will still find a way to shrink. I'm sure they have a number in mind that is their, um, for lack of a better term, kind of their max spending number. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're going to say like, you know, we want us to make sure teams spend no more than $243 million. Um, and they're going to be willing to divvy it up in all sorts of ways as long as it does. That's going to be the thing they're focusing on. It's like make sure we don't go over this number. Um, so that's a depressing start. Uh, so I so we'll talk about what happened in baseball last night. Um, if you're listening, this is today's Thursday. Last night was Wednesday. Um, you know the sticky stuff kind of went away. Um, like we kind of got used to pitchers walking off the field and handing their hat and and glove to umpires um uh, a recent piece by ken rosenthal showed that the numbers really hadn't changed it all seemed like it was kind of just part of the game now and not having much of an effect and then and, and um it certainly wasn't any sort of part of the zeitgeist or anything like that and then last night things went off um and it started in chicago when um an umpire way overreacted to what Lance Lynn did. Um, Lance Lynn was frustrated with his inning, um, wasn't happy, and was walking back to the dugout. Uh, the umpire said, hey, I got to check you. He left his hat and glove on um, kind of the rail of the, of the, of the dugout. Uh, the umpire said, I need your belt too. And he took his belt off and flipped it to the ump, and the ump tossed him. Um, I... It, it seemed like an overreaction by the umpire, which is not an uncommon thing in today's baseball. Uh, and then uh, later, later in the night, over in the West Coast, in your your world, um, Caleb Smith of the Diamondbacks uh, was ejected when they found a couple of things on his glove. Um, Smith himself, as well as the manager, are kind of vehemently denied that there was anything wrong there, that, that they were doing anything. But it seems like all of a sudden... This became a story again. And this is, I mean, this is a huge game for the White Sox. White Sox are playing the A's. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess it's a bigger game for the A's at this point. The White Sox are, are running away with the Central, but like this you know, playoff team, and I don't know, maybe on an individual level, not that I care about awards, but like Lanson's shooting for a Cy Young and things like that, and, and it's out after two or three. Um, hey, Sticky Stuff's back. Yeah, I was at the D-backs game last night, and um, you were there. I was there. Um, so Did I saw you see the- his glove. <laughs> uh, I had the high speed with me, but I was not. It was not trained on Caleb Smith uh, intensely all night. He was pretty adamant and animated that he had nothing going on. Um, yeah. He at the same time he was chucking eighty nine past like Alec Bohm at the letters and stuff. So <laughs> it was weird to see like Caleb Smith do that. I guess I know Bohm's not had a great year, but um, but yeah, I. I yeah, we talked about this in the past too. Like, I started to watch pitchers pretty closely the last couple of years. I think I've compared it to watching like a close-up magician try, trying to figure out how they do it. Right, uh, right. And once they started to check for sticky stuff, that piece of what I was at the ballpark doing every day sort of went away. Uh, and it's totally common. Like even on the complex level, the umpires are checking. 17, 18 year old Dominican kids, hats and gloves and belts for stuff. Uh, I still see pitchers digging into their belt loops and, and touching various parts of their bodice regularly. Uh, but seemingly for no reason at all. Um, so, but this is obviously, you know, you live in Arizona. I know you go to some complex leagues games, but they're doing this in complex league games. The innings over one, two, yep. three, pitcher walks off and the umpire walks in front of him and checks him. Yep. Yeah. It's it's not like an every inning thing, but yeah, just about every pitcher gets checked at some point, uh, even on even on the complex. And it's the same deal, like the guys walking into the dugout. I think the dynamics of the big league game are different because a lot of times, especially if it's a starter exiting after a good game, uh, that the fans want to congratulate him and that moment is interrupted by like that walk to the dugout where everyone's standing behind the dugout, like going nuts because you just shoved for seven innings, goes away. Like you're being checked now. Right, right, um, right. And so yeah, like the Lance Lynn thing. I saw the video of it, uh, and then I saw his post game pressure where he's like, "Oh, I guess I hurt his feelings," which yeah. is you know meant to insult the umpire. Like you shouldn't have feelings. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he was a douchebag to the umpire. Like just grow up, and you had a shit inning. Uh, just grow up and do the thing that everybody else, all of your yeah, peers, have I, to I, do. I, tossing him felt strong. I, I, I'm not. I agree. Yeah, I, I admit that Lancelin was being kind of, uh, but Lance Lynn, I, an intense dude. Um, uh, yeah, but in just, your post game presser, I, like you've had time to take a chill pill at that point. Like, how yeah, long are you I do about it. Lance Lynn does not. I think Lance Lynn like eats breakfast intense. I don't think he. I don't really know if there's a switch there. I, I agree that he shouldn't have been tossed for it. Um, that in the moment, I'm hoping that you know the umpire has some ability to just be like, all right, yeah, you know, this guy's yeah. emotional. And it's in fine. General, the, umpire, not at me. the umpire could tell him, "Hey, you're being a dick," you know, yeah. and that's fine. And then don't. But tossing him from that game, I think, is it's just bad for the game. Like, I don't, I don't think it was necessary. He didn't. He just tossed it. He didn't. I don't think he did anything else. And and I, 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 I mean, if this was a playoff game, imagine if it was a playoff game. Oh yeah, and maybe and maybe, and, may, and maybe the umpire would have would have exercised more restraint if it was a playoff game. Uh, but um, the Caleb Smith thing—he was probably coming out anyway. Like, yeah, it seemed like he was done. He had thrown o- 
over an inning, like several innings at that point. He came into the game fairly early for Humberto Castellanos, who was making his second career start. Um, but yeah, he was so he was angry, and then at at one point, like I guess it was Robbie Hammock who stopped him from like going totally berserk. Yeah. Um, Did you see the so, post game presser? No, I I read the quote that he's he's adamant that there was nothing. Yeah, he was very he was very adamant and clearly like really upset about it. Yeah, yeah, because he feels as though like his now good name has been besmirched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think that's true. Like if if it comes back from the league office that yeah we checked this dude's glove and there's nothing on it, then I think that you know there's no egg on anybody's face other than the umpires, I guess. Right. But but what is it still that's like? The pitchers are still feeling around with their fingers for stuff, so I don't know. There's probably some stuff that's allowed still that they're using, but but yeah, um, that Caleb Smith. If anything, Caleb Smith reminds me of Starling Marte and like tr- the D-backs trading a comp round prep arm and a top 100 prospect away for Starling Marte, and then getting a dude who was like a minor league Rule Five type. And Caleb Smith for him because it was known that Ken Kendrick didn't want to pick up Starling Marte's option. Like this is what I associate Caleb Smith with. So, <laughs> and then and then uh, like what Oakland gave up to get him is more than what the Diamondbacks got for him. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's been great for Oakland. Um, Which again is on Ken Kendrick. Let me be clear. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to take shots at Ken, it's fine with me. Um, Speaking of Oakland, um, a far more disturbing thing happened the night before uh, when um, Chris Bassett, who's been oh. uh, really good for Oakland, obviously, uh, took a line drive to the head. Um, it was a very scary moment. Uh, it turned out he is, um, I guess, relatively okay. Like, he, he you know, his vision's fine. Um, it, you know, he does need surgery for... Um, it's called a tripod. I think it's a jaw injury. Um, and, and there are broken bones in the skull and things like that. But, uh, you know, long term, you should be okay. But um, obviously, it's a very scary thing. Um, it's one of those things where um, like I was, you know, watching and, and my wife was in the kitchen doing something and she just heard me yell, God damn it. And it just it's upsetting to see because um, yeah. clearly something was, was you know, really wrong. Um and it's upsetting and baseball's dangerous and balls come off bats hot and guys are bigger and stronger than ever. And, um, you know, I mean, this, I mean, let's be honest, this ball, you know, Chris was able to turn away a little bit, take it where he took it. Um, honestly, if the ball is, you know, five inches different in terms of its trajectory, it could have seriously injured him. And, and I hate to say this, but even killed him. Yeah. Um. Like, where do we go from here? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, you remember the 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 funny hats that you know the kind of the padded hats and things like that. But like, it, is there something we can do about this? And or and I guess and and should there be should we do something about this or is it just just like that's a it's it's one of the dangerous aspects of professional sports. Yeah. It's um. It's probably every couple of weeks that I see in person. A near miss, at yeah. least, uh, and and especially this year, and maybe some of it is because of what happened to Tyler Zombro in the minors. Which, if people haven't seen the video of that, continue to have not seen the video of that. 
um, raised AAA pitcher took one off of the temple and collapsed. Like, collapsed, was out before he hit the ground, and then, like, starts to seize and convulse on the ground, basically, in a way that's really fucking horrible to watch. Um, yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the right word. It's horrifying. People can go, like, the Shane Baz video I have from Folly a couple years ago has a near miss, and it's got a near miss in on the high speed as well that I shot. Uh, like, it's inches from your temple, and it's... Right. It's coming back at 100 plus miles an hour sometimes. And the reason that that base coaches in all around, all across baseball wear helmets now as opposed to hats is because like years ago. Coolbaugh. Yeah, Mike Coolbaugh, who was a Rockies minor league first base coach, got hit with a ball standing in like the coach's box. uh, And the pitcher not only is closer than that, but has just finished doing something athletic and has like, is in less a position to just anticipate and react. Yeah, And for people who don't know, like Kubal got hit by a line drive and died. He yeah. He killed. died. He was killed by a line drive. And so, you know, like I've seen, there was a kid at UCLA who got hit like flush in the eye mm. um, during like that Dodger stadium, four team college tournament that they have. Like, I've just seen some horrible stuff. I'm waiting at some point for someone to be hit in that precise spot that will kill them. I think it's inevitable. There are just too many balls pitched and put back into play every year for it not to happen. Eventually, you're just playing a certain type of Russian roulette, basically. Like, that's all it is. So, um, I don't know what to do. I do think they need to do something. Uh, I know that... Alex Torres's hat looks ridiculous, but I don't know. I think all baseball hats kind of look ridiculous. <laughs> like if you're going to sell me a hat with the flag pumped into the Cardinals logo or whatever, like that doesn't look any dumber than the great gazoo hat that Alex Torres had on. So I do think that like, they should, it's a thing that they should get out ahead of just because at some point someone's going to die. Something like, bad's going to happen. It's just inevitable. Like, again, think about how many balls get put in play every year across all of pro baseball. It's pretty likely that one of them is just going to strike a pitcher in the wrong spot at some point. Right. Like, and there's just like enough trials. And like you said, we had that the AAA game with the, with the Rays and, and, and you know, the guy's seriously injured still. Yeah. Um, I, I I have no answers here. I don't I don't think you can force anything on anybody. Um, I mean, you can grandfather people in the way the NHL did with helmets. Where yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you say all right, like look, you can choose to do this now or not, and then just like one day, if you watch hockey highlights from forty years ago right now, and Bobby Clark is flying around with no helmet on. You're like, wow, look at all these psychopaths. Look at the goalie who can't, you know, Clint Malarchuk. And uh, there's a reason, like, the hockey goalies have that plastic flap that hangs down below their jawline and protects their neck. And it's because, like, a goalie took a skate to the neck. Right. Uh, and so, like, at some point, yeah, it's like you got to – we'll just look at all this the way we look at the hockey safety now uh, or, you know – or look at it the way we look at schools and guns and how that's failed to be addressed despite like stuff like this happening. So I get that you look like a tool. It will be harder to get laid if you're a pitcher because you look like a tool. 
And that's about the only drawback. Like, I can't think of any other reason that you wouldn't want to wear a giant foam pad around your dome. Um, let's keep the, the, the news dark. And I, I want to talk about um, the legal proceeding that uh, happened last week. Not the big one that I don't want to talk about. But uh, this involved um, Diamondbacks prospect Christian Robinson. Um, and, and tell the listeners what happened. Okay, so... Uh, you know, Christian's young guy from the Bahamas. He was basically stuck here in Arizona during the pandemic. Uh, during that time, he was struggling mentally. Uh, it was not very long into the pandemic compared to like now where he was wandering the Highway 10, which is like the main stretch of road that cuts through the metro and then extends from here to California. And he was on the outskirts of the metro, like where the it meets the desert, basically, mm-hmm. uh, just sort of wandering around away from his car. Uh, he had thrown his keys into the desert. Uh, police responded to him. And because he had also been having paranoid delusions, basically. Right. I mean, to be clear, he's having a mental health crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he'd been having paranoid delusions. Zach Buchanan in The Athletic wrote about this at length. It's where you want to go to find the most comprehensive breakdown of it. Uh, uh, some of it is associated with high-powered cannabis that he was smoking, apparently. Uh, but he's having paranoid delusions. He thought that the cops putting him into the car were like – you know, government agents after him, basically. And so he struggled to get away and struck one of the officers. Uh, And so now he's got a felony charge. He's been in the Bahamas most of the year. He was here recently. I know he was, like, seen at a D-backs inter-squad game by a friend of the pod, Bill Mitchell, a couple days ago. Um, And went to court, had a hearing. He's been given 18 months probation that he can't really complete because he can't get a visa to be in the country because of his felony charge. So it's a catch 22 now. So um, he's in the Bahamas. He needs to renew his visa. You can't renew your visa with a felony on it. And so he can't get back to the States to serve his probation. And so now all of a sudden he's in this incredible limbo, um, which impacts his baseball career. He also has, um, I don't know if it's a wife or a partner, but he also has a, with a child in the States. Yeah, here um, in Arizona. And he can't, and he's stuck in the Bahamas. Um, I, this is, you know, not to get too political, it's just further proof that our judicial system has absolutely no ability whatsoever to deal with mental health issues. Um, but, you know, on a base, career-wise, this is, you know, all but destroyed at this point now. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Specific to the player in this instance, uh, that to have missed 2020 basically because of the pandemic, 2021 because all of this stuff had yet to unfold uh, in front of a court, and then likely 2022 because he'll be unable to enter the country. Uh, Like it's a guy who needed reps who's going to miss three years of reps. So, um, so yeah, it seems it's it's pretty bad. Like. The question that we'll have to answer is, all right, where do we put this guy on a list eventually? It definitely is secondary in importance to just like, this is a nice young kid, basically. Right. Who I've been watching since he was 17, and he's been nothing but nice to like anyone I've seen him interact with. And uh, yeah, like last year took a toll on all of us. Um, 
as nice as Christian is, he's always been a little bit immature and I can't imagine what it's like to, to probably do like, there are things that probably happened to certain people during 2020 that I had already reckoned with, right? Like when you start to doubt, like, Oh, you know what? Maybe there's not like a grand plan, you know, for anything. <laughs> it's just like, Oh, look, we just look how chaotic everything is. And there's not a reason for anything like to have to deal with that when you're a religious 20 year old kid and have to deal with it thousands of miles away from home and you can't see anyone. You don't know when you might again, you know, like it, that, that adds a, a weight beyond just what's actually happening. It sounds like that was maybe what was going on here. Uh, and then in terms of like the high powered weed thing, first of all, I'd like to know where he got it. Second of all, like, I don't know when you're, when you're that young, it's probably not a good idea. Um, I'm the dude who thinks that like we should be legal if you're 25 and above uh, when you're like frontal cortex is more likely to be totally developed and you can make better decisions with it and not abuse it. But, um, but that was part of the proceeding basically. Like the judge basically said, Hey, like you made a choice to hit the cop and Mm -hmm. to like smoke weed. And so you have your actions are going to have, consequences but i agree with you like it doesn't make sense for someone to be unable to complete the probation that they've been given because of the thing that's necessitated the probation like it doesn't it doesn't really make sense it feels like a mechanism just to keep people out of the country basically it's just punitive and and this is the problem with the judicial system for the most part it's not about making anyone better it's just about being punitive it's it's not it doesn't no one benefiting here no one's yeah. better. Society isn't better because of this, and, and Christian Robinson isn't better because of this. And, and it, it's it's nothing is right. It's where the breakdown between a lot of our societal processes and like my personal view on stuff it breaks down. There's there's it doesn't line up for the judge to be like, hey, you made these choices. Whereas I'll sit here and say like, no, like none of us really make any choices. <laughs> like <laughs> the world just happens to your brain and shapes it, and then your brain does stuff based on the way it starts and then the way the world around it shapes it. Like that's why I just think that we all have less agency than we assume and like to say out loud. Um, But yeah, like that's, that's basically, it's like, no, I don't think this kid made a choice. Like his brain is broken from the series of events that have unfolded in his and all of the rest of our lives. Yeah. And that's, I, it's the problem is that there's literally, there's just zero empathy in the system and that's, that's the problem. Um, what's actually, there are people listening that going, when are they going to talk about baseball? We'll talk about baseball now. Um, well, 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 where do you think, what is the best case for the Diamondbacks? Like, can they send him to Lee Dome? Can they, can he play in the Puerto Rican winter league? I, you mean, I, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know visa laws well enough. Um, I, my guess would be that he would not have a problem traveling in the Caribbean and playing in, in. The Dominican or Puerto Rico this winter. Um, I guess I, the question is, is, where do you go from there? And and like I also don't know. Um, you know, neither of us do really. Like what his legal avenues are from here. Um, right, and I, it sounds I'm like sure, the D-backs I'm sure he has either. some. Yeah, I'm sure he has some. But you're talking about it gets real complicated. And and like it's it's um, there are HR people who work for every team, who um, a large portion of their job is simply dealing with, with, with visas and, and, and getting people into countries. Um, 
and and it's it's a lot of work and I, i'm sure it's even more complicated when um you have someone with a legal problem like this i mean it's 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 hard enough just to get you know a 16 year old kid from the dominican who was born on the floor and, and his mom never got a birth certificate into the country yes. you know and and um you know, but some of the legal problem, I, I that just adds so much complexity to it. I just don't, we just don't know what his legal options are, but um, I'm rooting for him. You know, I, you know, I'm not saying he didn't make a mistake. He did. But like, yeah. I, again, like the, the fact that the justice just has no empathy in this, in this kind of situation is just. Uh, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Um, okay. Baseball, baseball, baseball. You ready? Talking about yeah. baseball. So uh, yesterday while I was working, um, you know, Wednesdays are good because you got a lot of day games. And it was uh, it was not the most compelling of day baseball for a while. The 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 Triple A Cubs were beating up the Reds, and you know the Indians and Twins were playing like a, a meaningless game. And then at like two o'clock my time, it was Padres at Rockies. Um, the Padres, desperate for anything resembling a, a, a carbon-based life form who can throw a baseball, yeah. uh, signed Jake Arrieta, who made his start and pitched about as well as you'd expect Jake Arrieta to before he left with a hamstring injury. Um, and they lost again in Colorado. And throughout the year, the, the Padres' chance of reaching the postseason, uh, if you start playoff odd stuff, was always in the like 85 to 98 range, often in the upper 90s. Um, as we sit here with their, their slide, much of it due to injuries to their pitching, um, they're suddenly under 50%. They're 45.1% this morning. Um, you know, the Padres were the the team du jour, as they have been in the past, because um, they make all the moves, and they're super exciting, and they have Fernando Tatis Jr., and it's a super fun team, and they're very talented. And now their depth is being tested on a level that they're just unable to answer. And really, almost any team would be unable to answer with this many injuries, especially to their pitching. Um, but this is, a, this is a precipitous slide all of a sudden, um, to the point where they're not a favorite to make the postseason anymore. Um they need to get healthy, first of all, but even if they do, um, there are other teams kind of breathing around them. Obviously, the Reds had a horrible week with the Cubs, but they're they're still around. Um, the the what's Whoever doesn't win the East is around. Uh, this isn't going well. Yeah. Uh, the, the pitching depth piece, I don't know how much of this could have actually been avoided um you know you got three starters in the dl that's yeah but like like, there's very very yeah i have the rays do things in a way that i respect in terms of being able to mix and match arms all day like the Rays have like seven dudes at durham who you could like plug and play who you could you could like put in as an opener and you'd expect two solid innings from like they, they they can do it all day and like most teams you lose three starters and you're just no team can come back from that Really, this the team needed Mackenzie Gore to mm. be himself I thinking, again. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, how much they needed that. And but yeah, they have a whole playoff rotation on the IL, like Clevenger, Darvish, Lamette, Morihone, and Paddock. If if you told me that that was a team's five man rotation and that they were healthy all year, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like a, a viable playoff rotation. Mm. Uh, I saw Darvish get hurt here in Arizona a couple weeks ago, and oh right, that was there. Um, yeah, like. It was all, he was awesome for a couple innings, and then like it just sort of went away, and the ball came out of his hand weird on that last pitch, and the trainer was out almost immediately. And the Dodgers, meanwhile, have like Andre Jackson is the guy who they have coming up to make a spot start. They're not trying to 
you know, find a, a scrap heap arm like Arietta. Well, or... well, that's what surprised me. And I, I think the Padres are generally smart. Like, it, it's it's not the first time you see this. I just feel like teams, got, you know, see, oh, Jake Arietta, veteran dude. He's won a Cy Young and maybe get some magic back. And the magic's not there anymore. There's no magic to get back. It's just, it's bereft. And like, you know, their AAA rotation, the Padres, is very bad. But like, why not just give Adrian Martinez a pop and see what happens, right? <laughs> You're gonna get. You have a much better chance of getting like five innings, two runs from Adrian Martinez than you are from Jake Arrieta, aren't you? Well, I guess you're that, burning a roster spot. Like you got to, right. you know, you're taking that. That's out. That that argument's off the table. Like, why not see if that guy can do something? Because you know Jake Arrieta isn't. Like, well, I, I I was baffled by this. I think um, that they are preparing like. Uh, to, to give Martinez a spot start here and there. I think you start to see his name trickle out among the Padres beat writers because it's being like floated by people with the org as a, as a possible guy who they, they hand innings to here. I, I don't know. Like the McKenzie Gore thing is kind of fascinating. And, For people who don't uh, know, like talk, let's talk about what's going on with McKenzie Gore. McKenzie, McKenzie Gore, Gore was a guy who was seen as he one the of, best. if not the best pitching prospects yeah. in baseball. And, and, and here we are and he's throwing like 20 innings all year. Um, it, it doesn't look the same. Um, he said like command and mechanical problems. Like, like, where are we on, on, you know, today with Mackenzie Gore? Yeah. This is a guy who had more wins than he surrendered runs in 2019. <laughs> and then at the alt site in 2020 was just not right. And you could make an inference like that. That was true based on the way the Padres behaved when they needed pitching last year. And we're turning to Ryan Weathers before they were Mackenzie Gore. Uh, and then, yeah, Gore came out. I saw three of his spring starts. Just no feel for throwing strikes at all. Uh, his secondary stuff is dependent on location because from a raw like stuff perspective is just average to slightly above. It's really the fastball that is a dominant like blow this past you offering because of its carry and angle. Uh, but... He demoted himself at one point. There were like, hey, he's got a blister in quotes, but like people were actually working with trying to redo his arm stroke and he's just sort of disappeared. And um, and yeah, like a, a fully functional or even like a partially functional Mackenzie Gore at this point would be better than, you know, Jake Arrieta probably at this point. So yeah, it's... Um, Sam McWilliams they brought in who signed a big league deal in the offseason mm-hmm. with the Mets and he's sputtered and not really done anything and I don't I don't know and, that, and Gore's, Gore's in Peoria right now Gore's, um, Gore's in Arizona yeah. working on things trying to figure yep. things out for even just a return to action yeah and there was a night a few nights ago where like it sounded like the front office brass was in town, including mm-hmm. Preller and like one of the photographers here in Arizona got turned away from Peoria Stadium for an AZL game. So mm. um, maybe something was going on, like they're checking in or trying to see whatever. But um, right, is there anything like some of this is also like Reggie Lawson isn't good. Um, he's <laughs> on the forty man. Right, he's just never been healthy, and like Ethan Elliott, a lefty who's a double-A San Antonio, doesn't have to be on the 40-man until December 2022, but like he might just be a better option at this point. I don't know. Is there anything from their off-season trades that they could have avoided? Because they really hemorrhaged so much prospect depth, but it wasn't they did. They, pitching, they kind of, upper-level pitching that could have helped. No, I don't think so. And, and they, I mean, they kind of went for it, and that's admirable, obviously. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it's 
they were a team and I think the you know the Mets were similar and I think we've seen the Mets slide because of health they were a team where if they don't stay healthy they're in trouble like they don't have the depth options that some other teams do like I, I think um like the Braves have done a good job creating depth up I wrote about depth this week at Fangirl. I was like the Braves done a really good job creating depth um but like the the the, the Mets were another version where like if this is the team this looks pretty good if they start losing guys they're in real trouble. And, and that's what the Padres were. And they've started losing guys and they're in real trouble. I, I, I want to talk about an aside. You talked about a photographer getting turned away from a, a, from an AZL game, from a complex league game. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked earlier, a, a, a earlier show when you, you were on about, um, you know, obviously spring training happened. Spring training was, um, and I'm using scare quotes here, normal. Um, and then once the, like kind of the, 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 teams went on their way and you still had stuff going on in Arizona, like instruct instructs and things like that and, and mm. extended. Um, it sounded like it was, it was um, an uneven situation. Like there were certain teams who were like, yeah, come on in. And there were certain teams saying no one's allowed. Right. Um, yeah. It's like, where are we now with, so the complex league has started, the complex league is going in Arizona. Mm. Um, like what is the situation as far as attending games right now as um, you know, for, for scouts and for people like you? It has mostly loosened up, although it is not totally uniform. Like the Reds at one point were not allowing anybody, and then they were. And then again, I'm told that they're not allowing anybody. Um, You know, because we're talking about, in a lot of situations, kids from the Dominican Republic or from Venezuela who are maybe not vaccinated. And if Mm -hmm. your backfield in particular is where you play – your complex level game and there's not a lot of space and the scouts and media member or two who are going to be in the scout section, which is the only place to sit on your backfield are going to be sitting next to your kid. Which are again, just, rise, just risers behind home plate, you know, right. it's not like, yeah. like there's stands here. Yes. Yeah, like, so like the Cubs play in Sloan park and it's like a giant, stadium that fits 10,000 people that was paid for with taxpayer dollars. (laughs) And it's easy for me to distance from anyone and everyone in there because there are 10 scouts and then the players that aren't in the dugout and that's it, like in the whole stadium. So it's, I can go in there and it's totally safe. But if you told me, Hey, you're on the Reds backfields and yeah, they're just small. You can fit maybe 30 people on these bleachers right behind home plate. Right. I think it's reasonable to say, Hey, don't let Long and Hagen in. Because he's going to be sitting next to the kid who's not wasn't old enough at one point to be vaccinated, you know, and is coming from the DR and like wasn't he's just been here for three weeks and hasn't been vaxxed. Um, like that seems reasonable to me, but it is still pretty variable. Um, and so yeah, like sometimes you show up and uh, like it's easier for me because I'll put on a pair of slacks. And a collared shirt, and I carry a bag, and I look like I do, and so people just let me in places. Right. And first, so first, the first rule is to act like you belong. Absolutely. <laughs> <Always. Yeah. laughs> like I had a scout just tell me, like you know, at one point I said, "Hey, are the Rockies?" Because the Rockies are one of those teams that are less likely to allow anything to happen. Um, and so yeah, I did just have a scout this year tell me, like, "Hey, just walk like you." own Salt River Fields yeah. into the Rockies complex and you should be fine. But no, technically you're not allowed to be there. Uh, and so, yeah, like it is still pretty variable. Access on the minor league side is a thing that I'm paranoid about losing in general, yeah, especially course. in the complexes. 
Um, I don't think it's because like, oh, we can't let the Fangraphs guy in because he's going to learn all our secrets. No. Uh, I just think it's rather than have a policy in place and have to ask someone to like do the work that involves checking media in. Uh, they would rather just be like, oh, just don't let them come and we don't have to worry about it then. <laughs> you know, like it takes work for someone to say, all right, well, here's my email and your name will be on a list that I print yep. out and give to someone a few hours before the game. And like, no, like that takes work and time and organization to do. And teams would just rather not do that stuff. People would rather not do that stuff, like right. in general. If, when I worked at my insurance job, if I could avoid doing a thing like I just described, like then I probably would. Right, um, right. So I understand it, but also like then just don't – then just look the other way as I walk past you then. And we can both not have to worry about anything. I just like the fact that you use the word slacks to describe your pants. They're, they're like chinos from Target. Yeah, slacks. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the basic rules of life. Walking everywhere like you belong. Yeah. And uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Absolutely. But <laughs> I was also like no one's going to – like I've seen – Emily Walden walk into the Fall Stars BP and be stopped three times by people who are wondering why she's there, like if she belongs there. And like someone asks her if she's a player's girlfriend, you know? Duh. And it's just like, well, you know, that's never happened to me. <laughs> right. It's just people just assume. So it's definitely, they it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, like, that's definitely the approach I've taken since 2008 and eight and it's worked. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, on that, we'll take a break. You'll listen to some doom metal from heave and then we'll come back and talk to Lindsay Adler about the resurgent Yankees. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is best known as covering the Yankees beat for that little startup known as The Athletic. And they added to their resume this week as official meme portrait artist of the New York Yankees. And joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in Brooklyn, New York, it's Lindsay Adler. Lindsay, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? We are good. So... Going by the the Fangraphs playoff odds system, on July sixteenth, the New York Yankees were at their their nadir. They're at twenty four point three percent chance of reaching the playoffs. Um, Aaron Boone was having press conferences talking about frustrations. Yankees Twitter was a uh, intriguing combination of both panic stricken and furious. Um, <laughs> They made giant trades that grabbed a lot of headlines. Joey Gallo, Anthony Rizzo. Uh, just six days ago, on August 13th, the Yankees' chances of making the playoffs were 42.7%. And as we speak here on Thursday afternoon, they're at 80.3%. And if the season ended right now, they would be in the wild card game. How are the vibes in the Bronx? The vibes are intense. Um, the vibes have been bad for most of the season and I would say that you know as those figures pretty clearly represent like things have really accelerated over the last few days um I described the atmosphere during Wednesday night's uh Red Sox Yankees matchup as pretty much having like 27 rings bro energy like (laughs) you could just feel it you know people went from being like furious at the team furious at the situation to just sort of like discarding all of their frustrations from the first four months and we're like you know all right the Yankees are back like they just became Yankees fans again and I think on I think on Monday um I wrote that you know the Yankees have played well um since mid-July but really with you know with a with a tight AL East race um in September you know, and the, and the, the A's and and the Astros playing well, I was like, you know, it's really going to come down to who the Yankees beat. And I think the Fangraphs odds then were like 50.4%. And I think I wrote something like, this was, this was four days ago. I wrote something like, you know, call it 50, 50. That's basically what you're expecting when you look at the standings right now, because the Yankees may be playing well, but you know, they've got to got to beat these teams and then they sweep the Red Sox in three games and now I'm like okay well great three days ago I wrote that it looked like a 50-50 odd and now they look like the best team in baseball suddenly so um things have turned around very very quickly I would say and it's um it's really wild and uh, you know so what what have the keys been to this? Obviously, they got a bit of a roster overhaul with, with Joey Gallo, who hasn't been amazing. And, and you know, Rizzo, and maybe we'll get into this later, who's missed considerable time. Um, you, what has kind of been the key here? The team is different. Um, they have more speed and athleticism. I think having... I think just having some new blood um, sort of... I mean, I imagine people around the team would say that I'm off on this but I think just sort of like clearing out some of those lingering frustrations from earlier in the season you know like guys like Andrew Velasquez don't give a crap about the Yankees playing poorly in June 
or whatever. Um, you know, adding some left-handed threat to the lineup, which obviously changed the way changes the way their lineup looks, changes the way pitchers have to approach them. Um, the thing that's been really interesting to me is that like so much of this has still come down to their pitching, and it's it's really hard to describe because um, they've had some obviously very high profile um, bullpen implosions since mm, the all-star break about, you know, since that um, final game in Houston, but proportionately um, when you have a bunch of basically gassed relievers and your closer was out, like they've had a couple, you know, blown saves or whatever, but for the most part, like they are winning really, really tight games and it's just, really um i i don't i don't get it i I don't get why they're (laughs) i don't i don't get why they're doing this i don't get why it's like high stress and drama every single day but you know between um between games during tuesday's doubleheader after they won the first one aaron boone sat down on zoom and he just like sort sort of like started laughing and i you know if it were not the zoom era i may have asked like are you enjoying doing this to your fan base? Because I'm pretty sure they're all going to have like heart attacks by the end of August. Um, It's just, it's a really weird, it's a really weird way for them to just be surging through the standings, but you know what, whatever works, I guess. And and the Yankees have, um, they're getting ready for a weekend with the twins. They have a tough road trip from there where they go to, I believe, Atlanta, Oakland, and then the Angels. But their September schedule, they played the Orioles twice. They have a season with the rain. They have a series with the Rangers. Um, they end it tough. They end it with uh, a road trip at Boston and Toronto. But the schedule seems to be, for the most part, kind of favorable for them for the rest of the year. I mean, it kind of depends, I guess, on what Boston and Toronto do. Um, Boston right now is not... It's, it's not looking like the team that I saw for the first half of the season. Um, Toronto, I think, could definitely make them pay at some points, but I, I don't know that they look like spoilers. I mean, the the really interesting thing to me is that their, their last series of the year is a three-game set against the Rays. And I think right now they're, <clears throat> they're five games behind the Rays. And it really didn't look like the division was in play for the Yankees. And, you know, when you have three games head to head and uh, about six weeks until you get to those three games and you currently have a five game gap, um, I'm really interested to see where that goes because it could completely be the case that with only three games left in the season series, they won't be able to, you know, drag the Rays down by themselves. But like Yankees fans were chanting, like, we want Tampa. <laughs> last night and I was like I'm pretty sure you know before the trade deadline I wrote like okay you know the Yankees are in a position where they don't have to worry about the division the organization feels that like if they just get in to October then they have a chance um and now they're trying to catch up I I don't know it's just like this ridiculous emotional whiplash that I'm not really sure that I can keep up with because the the, the highs have been high for the Yankees over the last few weeks, but the, the lows have been like stunningly low. It's, it's, I, you know, as a neutral observer who's tasked with describing it, it's hard enough, but like, I sincerely cannot imagine being a Yankees fan right now. Like, I know that there's not a lot of like broad sympathy 
for Yankees fans, and I totally get it. Um, but like, I I, can't, I just can't imagine like how out of their minds they're feeling right now, which is why I was not at all surprised when they were just like completely nuts in the Bronx during Wednesday's game against Boston. Is there any sense in moments like this that either from the fans themselves and what you hear from them in the athletic comment section or on social media or like drive time radio, which is part of what I assume drives the hysteria train when the team's not playing well, like that has anyone said, Hey, look like for the last four months before now, when we were so frustrated and angry, we didn't have to be like, it's fine that we're here now and the team is in position to make the playoffs. Has anyone need the sense that anyone's like, Oh, we didn't have to spend the last four months gnashing our teeth. No, because I, I think this is this is a conflict that I saw a lot from Yankees fans versus baseball fans who are not Yankees fans. It's like, you know, oh, look, the Yankees are hovering around 500 for once and Yankees fans are losing their mind. Well, this was a team that was projected to pretty easily be the best team in the American League East. And yeah, we can talk about how winning is everything in New York and expectations and blah, blah, blah. But truth is like they were underperforming um the the thing that was really interesting to me was that despite their issues they were still doing enough to keep themselves you know in a position to take off in the second half you know there were a lot of times earlier in the season where I really thought that like they could have spiraled you know they took some bad losses they had some pretty ugly situations and you know people have fans have gotten on Aaron Boone a lot for saying things like you know like after after a bad ninth inning implosion or whatever like you know well we've taken these bad losses but we just keep you know getting up from the mat and like independent of what of what the manager is saying that that actually has been astonishing to me they've they've taken some really embarrassing moments this season and then just gone and won the next two games and then had another embarrassing moment and then won the next two games. And so it, it doesn't really make sense when you tease out the, the parts of it, but the, you know, the, the sum of it is basically they did enough to keep themselves alive in the standings by the time they reached the tr- trade deadline. And that's really, that that's really all it is. You know, they, they were in a hole, but they weren't totally out of contention. And so they they sort of limped to the end of July, um, but they made it, I guess. If Kevin and I, who do this for a living, were like stacking rookie arms who would have played <laughs> a significant role in the Yankees rotation this year, at the beginning of the season, we would have said, well, some combination of Davey Garcia and Clark Schmidt are the obvious two, like, th- who are almost likely to contribute in some fashion this year. And then our next year after that probably would have been Yoendries Gomez, who's very advanced for his age, and Luis Medina, who had an unbelievable winter ball. And now instead this week it's been Luis Hill, who they got from the Twins in a small, was it I think the Jake Cave trade from a, a few years ago, who was up like throwing 94 to 97, pitching the first end of a doubleheader against Boston. Uh how do you see the those these young arms kind of contributing the rest of the year? If the playoffs started tomorrow, what does the Yankees rotation look like? 
Um, and how did the team come to have to rely on someone who at the beginning of the year seemed like, yeah, this is a reliever who's a couple years away? Yeah, you know, the really interesting thing to me was when I heard that Heal was the one coming up, I was like, what's what's going on here? Um, and someone told me, like, he, he's ready. You know, we, we think he's ready. He just needs to do it, which was really interesting to me. And, you know, I'm sure you guys know that, like, the one of the things about the Yankees organization is that a lot of players who may be ready to advance to the next level, whether it's from double A to triple A or whatever, they, for whatever reason, they're sort of pitching at a level where maybe they've just found a lot of success. Um, heel, heel was a surprise to me. And, but, you know, we know that the, the quality of your arsenal or sequencing or any of that doesn't really matter when you're a, a rookie making your third major league start in a, in a crucial game against the Red Sox. It's, it's the composure. And that's what, that's what has just really been so impressive to me about him. I don't know really what the, the plan is for him. I mean, I was sort of surprised the other day because he was just very, very fastball slider, um, getting away with a lot of sliders and yeah. interesting positions. So, I don't really know what to make of how, you know, he would pitch with a little bit more exposure to him down the line. But, you know, you've got Garrett Cole, uh, Jameson Tyone's p- pitching like an ace. Jordan Montgomery is like basically like the king of quality starts right now. So, you know, you enter the postseason, you've got a really good front loaded first three, and then you have, you know, wacky Nestor Cortez. Um, (laughs) Domingo Herman can, I mean, I would be curious to see how they would use him, uh, in, in some of those crucial situations. But I think that the good thing for the Yankees is like, they did sort of discover this, you know, both in heel and in Nestor, they sort of found these options that they may not have expected to rely on. And then when you pair those options with, you know, the, the guys at the, at the front of their rotation, um, it's it's it it could be worse it, i i have seen the yankees pitching situation heading into september look a lot worse than it does right now <laughs> any idea how clark schmidt's been in the minors he's made five rehab appearances i have no idea which is <laughs> not great <laughs> um i believe i believe he made his first triple a start the other day and seems seems pretty good i mean clark i think this is such an interesting year for him because you know he had that like anterior elbow thing that I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but it's not the UCL, but you know, he, he came into spring just super eager and revved up and ready to go. And we can't really trace the origin of injuries ever, you know, but like early, early in his, um, early in the time, early in his time on the injured list, he thought that maybe he had injured himself by like going too hard out of the gate in spring training, trying to make the team. And he told me that, Darren O'Day told him like, Hey man, like I I get it. I've been in a position where I really want to prove that I can make the team, but like you got to use spring training as spring training regardless. And you got to chill. And Clark is just such a, he's, he's hyper eager, I would say. And so being sidelined for most of this year has been just like, it, it, 
it's been interesting, you know, like he, he's, he's not necessarily the guy who wants to be patient with his development. Um, mm. So this is ultimately like probably good for him to have to take a breather, um, you know, sort of settle into the process. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to see how and if they use him in September. I'm actually can't quite recall the September roster expansion um, rules at this point right now, but I mean, who knows what he could contribute? You know, you bring him up, you get a couple good starts or, you know, long relief appearances out of him. And there you go. Now you have even more depth. Whose job could that possibly be to know how the, the prospect of triple a might look? <laughs> uh, I think, I think yours, mine yeah. and Kevin's. So <laughs> we're go- We're going over here. I, um, I want to get back to the trade deadline. You know, obviously, you know, they added good players. Joey Gallo's really good at baseball. Anthony Rizzo's pretty good at baseball. Um, but those kind of deals and, and bringing those kind of things on can kind of send a message to a team and, 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 kind of help with the, the the mood there, if you will. Um, did that happen? Did, did you feel like this team was was energized when they added Gallo and Rizzo? I mean, I think, you know, in the so about a week before the deadline, less than a week before the deadline, was that really disastrous series in Boston um, where they lost three games and three of four, and they probably should have won three and four or three of four. So sort of heading into, let's see, we went to Tampa after that. Um, I think at that point, it was sort of like, well, what's actually going to make the difference right now? And 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 who do the Yankees even have to move to get these impact players? And, you know, I think someone like Gallo is super interesting because, like, it, the Yankees have the power hitters. Um acquiring someone earlier in the month like Tim Locastro kind of made sense because he was cheap under team control outfield depth and pretty speedy but like okay so Gallo you put the big power hitter prototype in in the lineup of other power hitters after the after the team had taken a lot of criticism for having a one-dimensional lineup and you know you have Luke Voigt coming back from injury but the issue is with your defense at shortstop, but then suddenly Anthony Rizzo becomes available and then it's a different way to improve infield defense because you can sort of rely on him to sort of, you know, bail out maybe a an offline throw um, or something like that. So I think ultimately, like, it was like pretty surprising because I just, I don't know that I had a sense of what they should do. I don't necessarily know that a lot of people had a sense of like what they could do to change things but you know i i think it was really interesting to see the front office just get aggressive and maybe if you know maybe if the obvious needs were you know a short stop and like a, a speedy left-hander and then they went and got a power hitting left-hander and a first baseman um it was it was pretty creative i think it was, it was a pretty creative way to upgrade the team and i think yeah like i said i think getting some guys from you know, non-contending teams and allowing them to come in, join a postseason race. Um, it certainly, it certainly hasn't hurt. I don't think. Um, we would be remiss if we did not talk about <laughs> the service you provided mm-hmm. to Twitter this week 
with a photograph of Joey Gallo. How did that come about? And I, I just kind of want to know, I, I, I'm interested in the process here of how you approached Gallo about this photo, how you got him to, to pose for the photo, um, and, and what this discussion was like. Um, it was actually at the end of a 40-minute interview <laughs> that was completely unrelated to uh, Italian-American heritage. But, um, you know, since they acquired Gallo and Rizzo, there's been just so many, you know, the, the Italian pinching emoji jokes, the Italian flags, the like spaghetti cannoli jokes, whatever. Um, I just want to state for the record that like I am Italian on my mom's side. I don't necessarily uh, consider myself like Italian American culturally, but like I'm not completely like out of my depth here making the, you know, pinch hands emoji or whatever. Um, but you know, it's like, I just wanted to make sure that like, if I'm like tweeting like Italian flags or whatever, or fans are that like, <laughs> this guy's okay with it. So it's just like, you know, at the end of a much longer conversation about, you know, baseball, I was like, I just want to check, like, are you okay with this? And he was like, Oh, it's so funny to me. He said something like, you know, when I was a ranger, I played here, I just thought it would be, you know, he was like, I thought the fan base would like me because I'm Italian American. Um, and I was like, yeah, um, these people are freaking loving it. Like your perception of that was right. And I was like, I'm pretty sure they just like want to see you, you know, <laughs> doing this gesture. <laughs> and, you know, we were just like sort of laughing about it. I was like, do you want to just like do it? Uh, and so he, you know, went along with it. I took the photo and I was like, you know, this is, I, I considered it basically like open source, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to tweet this out and then it's going to become like everybody's Twitter Avi. Uh, and that's exactly what it did. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, you know, this fan base has been <laughs> really crabby this year. They're really jazzed up about the, you know, about the guy whose parents are from Brooklyn and Long Island, whose last name is Gallo, you know, Joey Gallo. So I was like, you know what? Here you go. Here you people go. Enjoy this. And I told him that this was something that people would want to see. And somehow I under—I still underestimated that. <laughs> um, just, I mean, this is like going in my obituary. Um, the, the lady who had Joey Gallo make the, you know, pinched hands gesture. So yeah. Um, reporting for you i guess and and now if i can i hope i can reveal this we talked before about this the photo itself will be part of a national television broadcast i mean it might be <laughs> look here, here's here's my be. thing i i try very hard to understand this fan base um uh, which is maybe why i'm so exhausted all the time uh but yeah i was i was whatever give pe give people what they want if they want to if they you know like what's the matter with you about it okay sure here you go so congrats <laughs> I, I, everyone <laughs> i want to follow up and ask you a question about the yankees fan base we've we've we've, mm -hmm. we've we've made comments about them quite a bit i i there are times where uh you tweet your your frustration and flustering as to what you are getting via twitter from the yankees fan base when things are going bad um, and people asking you why Garrett Cole's pitching, why he's being interviewed uh, during the Field of Dream game, things like this. Um, and I can understand your position. I have an overriding theory 
that the number, the percentage of irrational fans of every team is kind of fixed. It's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a set percentage that really doesn't change among teams. It's just the denominator that matters. And obviously, um, you know, there are far more Yankees fans than there are, say, Rockies fans. And therefore, when you multiply that, that, that set percentage by the number, you get way more irrational Yankees fans than Rockies fans. But the percentage is the same. Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think Yankees fans are, are unique in their irrational per, and emotional percentage? I agree with that to an extent. Um, yes, the, the volume is just different. But, you know, what I always say is like, this is a generation of fans raised on George Steinbrenner. You know, this is, I talk about this with people who work in other markets and they're, you know, they, they just find it sort of like, they, they sort of roll their eyes when I say the expectation mm -hmm. is just different in New York, but like the expectation is just different in New York. Mm -hmm. Every team mm -hmm. will be like, we need to win. We need to be in contention every year. There's no, there's no realistic like taking a year off for the Yankees. And so the fans are just not okay with that. So it just is, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is volume. And then I think a lot of it is just that like um, one of the defining features of the psychological experience of the New York Yankees over the last 40 years or whatever has been one that's like prone to hyper emotion. So um Yes and no. They're, they're very passionate and uh, it sort of makes my job easy. You know, like you, you want to write for a passionate fan base who wants to know what's going on with the team. And I always joke that like I have the luxury of writing about like the 29th man on the roster and people will people will read it because they just right to to this maniacal fan base. Every <laughs> small thing the Yankees do matters because they understand that the cumulative effect is the difference between winning and losing. So it's, you know, I, I, I joke that they're my like lunatic children. Um, but you know, it's, they, they read what I write and I love them for it. So, you know, God bless them. And I, and I guess you're right. I think about it, like, you know, I, if, if, you know, just a random team, like if the giants, you know, get to the playoffs and, and get to the NLCS and lose. I think Giants fans are going to say, yeah, that was, that was a really fun year. It was a really good year. The Yankees don't win the World Series. It's a failure, right? <laughs> yes. Which which I wrote earlier this year that I actually think that that mindset is, was really detrimental to the Yankees. You know, the idea that, like, if we don't win the World Series, the whole season is a failure. I think that really creates just this ridiculous pressure cooker um, and I, I, I do think that, you know, some of the tough postseason losses they've taken over the last few years have just sort of like, they, they were just sort of like hanging over mm -hmm. things, you know, they, they, they knew how close they were. And it's just this, this, I, I mean, I personally don't think that the only thing that matters in baseball is what happens in October, but I think on the spectrum of franchises the Yankees obviously skew more towards that and I think that can be sort of a dangerous game I think it can be a good thing as well because let's be honest like we we need we need teams to want to be in contention every year and so I understand why you know the Yankees being the Yankees and having all these resources and whatnot drives everyone crazy but like on the other hand like I see, I see rebuilding teams and it makes me just like want to scream to an extent and I think 
you know, your comparison to the Giants is very interesting because coming up a, a, as a Giants fan, it's just like I was not prepared for New York. I was I was the the Giants fan, Bay Area fan mentality is so completely different mm. from New York fandom. You know, Giants fandom is super nostalgic. Um, there, it's amazing that they have like Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey like driving this team right now, and that's sort of what the market may not demand, but is more expected there. And so, getting to New York and just seeing sort of the idea of like whatever it takes at all costs, whoever it is, um, you know, if if what have you done for me lately? It's just it's very different, um, and it was definitely a surprising adjustment i would say the intensity um okay so as, as we said at the start of this as we 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 begin today the yankees with an 80 percent chance of making the postseason the the majority of that revolves around them getting to the wild card game uh if, if i asked you to put on your kreskin hat um where are the yankees after 162 games You know, I think I've dealt with enough of their up and down bullshit this year <laughs> to know that I'm not going to make a prediction. Um, like, I'm just not doing it. I'm tired of letting them make me look stupid this year. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I spent the first four months of the season writing like, man, the Yankees are like, really playing poorly and then they'd win three games and then I'd write oh wow look the Yankees are like finding success and then they'd like crap their pants the next three days so you know what like I'm done I'm done letting them victimize me so I don't know um it it very well could be a wild card slot I mean I, I guess I'm not necessarily ruling out the division either with five games and but it sounds, like you're, not, you're, it sounds like you're not ruling but, them out you're not ruling out them not making the playoffs either no, but what I've watched over the last, I mean, it's, it's weird because they've, you know, had a really high winning percentage over the last month or more or whatever, but like, it's really just like in the last, I don't know, week or so um, that I've really just felt like, okay, this is a different team. So if, if they are this team or anywhere, anywhere closer to this team that we're seeing in mid-August than they were in mid-June, then yeah, I I I think the postseason is probably the outcome. Um, like I said, you know, like you said, there are soft spots in the September schedule, but there's just a lot of AL East, and the AL East just seems like ripe for chaos. So ultimately, like the the thing for the Yankees is like they can't beat themselves, but there's just a lot of other stuff that they can't control. So I think they'll be in. I would. I mean, I think the safest uh, prediction <laughs> would be a wild card route. But like, if there's one thing I've learned this year, it's that I don't know anything. And I'm tired of trying to pretend <laughs> that I know what's going to happen with this team. Like, just, I'm just letting them like do their little thing. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just think about... Um... You know, in 2015, the Astros went to the wild card game and went to Yankee Stadium uh, and won the wild card game. And I have visceral memories of the crowd after that game. And it was um, 
it was intense um and it was uh it was tough getting out of there <laughs> and um, just uh if this if, if they make the wild card game and lose this is going to be a disaster right even if they they you know they they kind of complete this recovery and end up making the postseason if it's a quick exit it's is you know i mean there's been you know when they were like in the in in the shitter relative to Yankee mm-hmm. spectrum in the shitter. Yes. Like there are people calling for, for Brian Cashman's head here. Yes. Um, if, if, if they kind of won and done this, is that going to come back? You know, that's, that's like, <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they need to see from the rest of the year and what they need to see from the postseason. I had, I had my own ideas um, a few weeks ago, but I mean, I, I do think it's it needs to be said that it's like, like I said earlier, like this team could have spiraled out at points and now they're, you know, on a forward stretch and Aaron Boone has taken a lot of shit throughout the season. And he even said last week something like, you know, I know we've been very optimistic and maybe not even deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't, I don't know. You know, I really felt, as of a few weeks ago, like, okay, well, things are looking better, but like the team really just needs to win the world series. Otherwise, mm, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but well, I don't, I, I don't know. I guess my follow-up and, it, and it's the more important question really is just that, I mean, I'm talking about like what, what fans will be asking for, mm-hmm. what fans will say, like realistically in terms of baseball and how the team operates, if things went to shit and they didn't make the playoffs, mm-hmm. would either Cashman or Boone be in any trouble? Boone's contract is up at the end of the year, right. which I think makes it a very interesting thing. It's not, do you fire Aaron Boone or not? It's, has Aaron Boone justified another contract? Um, which is obviously a very different question. Brian Cashman, I mean, that is <laughs> that is the big question. Um, Cashman is essentially, I mean, I mean, he might as well be part of the Steinbrenner family, I think. And I think this trade deadline was probably a really good reminder for people that like when the pressure's on, like he's, there's, there's a reason. Um, he's so respected as a general manager. Um, he's been the GM since the nineties. Yeah. And like, it's, <laughs> the game has changed so much. Um, has it always been perfect? Probably not, but like he's, he, he's not the same GM as he was, but then I think at the trade deadline, we did still see some of that like signature Cashman aggressiveness. So it's, Mm. it's really interesting. I mean, my, my thing with Cashman is like, okay, so if Cashman gets fired, who are the Yankees bringing in who is better than him? Um, To an extent, like, I don't know what the full landscape is. Like, mm, is Eric Neander someone who the Yankees might, want is he available you know like what are these other options i don't know but to me the thing for cashman and for boone is okay for cashman is who you're bringing in um someone that the organization truly feels is better than the guy who knows this organization better than pretty much anyone else for aaron boone like has he justified another contract um so it's i'm not entirely sure that the questions that fans are asking are properly calibrated you know they're they're like in the ballpark but it's there's 
because of the situation they're in, like, I think there's a little bit more nuance to what the team should or should not do or what they will or will not do. Well, Lindsay, I want to thank you for joining us. I know you've got to get to the ballpark for the big Mm -hmm. John Gant, Jameson Tyon matchup tonight. Um, If you want to read Lindsay's stuff, you go to The Athletic. If you want to follow her on Twitter or her portraiture, her Yankees news and her general angst, go to Lindsay Adler, at Lindsay Adler. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Lindsay Adler for joining us before she heads off to Yankee Stadium. Our musical guest that you've been listening to and hopefully doing a little head pounding is Heave. Heave is a doom metal, sludge metal, whatever you want to call him, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. What is it with the desert and bands that sound like this? Like I think about like like this kind of world of of like doom metal, sludge, donor rock, some people might call it. I think about like the whole like late nineties kind of Caius Queens of the Stone Age move they, they came from the desert. Like I don't know what it is with the desert and this kind of sound. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh I've lived here for seven years now, and it does it does make you feel metal. Put up yeah. <laughs> There are times when it's at its worst here, you feel trapped. You feel trapped in your house or just indoors. And there is like that cabin fevery angst that comes out of me at least, um, where I do think that like, yeah, you need like a valve for that type of feeling. This summer hasn't been that luckily. Uh, last summer was definitely that. But uh, but yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that before. Yeah, um, I don't know what it is. That's a good one. I, I, like th- I like your initial theory. Here's one for you. Um, Clinton Yates... Well, I was introduced to him during uh, All-Star Weekend. Yeah, he seems like a really cool dude. I just follow him on Twitter. I don't know him at all. He says Phoenix is white Atlanta. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Never thought about it. I can you can you can you can you explain that one? That's maybe one that he should come on the podcast and explain. Well, Clinton not talk about Phoenix being white Atlanta. But uh, he was formed like most bands in a garage with a Craigslist ad uh, after a ten year hiatus from playing live music. Rhythm guitarist Eric Nussbickle started messing around with guitars again in late 2019 and began really writing material during the COVID-related shutdowns of 2020. Put out an ad. Next thing you know, he had a band. Um, like many bands in 2020, this was recorded in a garage. Um, and they're currently moving forward with new material, honing the current songs and ready to play out. Uh, this is Riff City. If you like metal riffs, this is the band for you. Um, you can learn more at Heave Official dot bandcap.com um this album is available there and it's uh one of those albums where it's pay what you want if you want it for free you can get it for free don't do that give them some money yeah. uh but uh heave and thanks to uh thanks to eric for, for getting in touch and, and passing on this music it's nice to have something a little hard and headbanging on the show and it's really really good very good good driving music uh you ready for emails yep send us emails folks music at fangraphs.com we do read them all um and if you have a question you can send it to us if you'd like to be a listener of the week one week and you live an interesting life and you'd like me to ask you about it i love people with interesting lives send us an email there as well music at fangraphs.com first email comes from ian ian says hiya it's a great start hiya no one says hi anymore uh you're in a front office and you have interest in kumar rocker in 2022 as i presume all would at the right price if you're that person with a chance to draft him and you got to choose, would you prefer he takes the year off and trains on his own? Or would you rather see him work in a foreign league? What if I could control his results in NPB? Would that change the answer? You don't learn anything new, good or bad. He pitches exactly how you thought he would or could, but he's getting work in live games versus training on his own and taking the year off of heavy work on a young arm. It seems like these are some tough decisions for a young man to make. Thanks as always, Ian. And Rob, my does this make sense chin mail chin music email editor. Ian, I'm just first of all hiya. floored, fl- hiya, and floored by the fact that you have a chin music that you've been someone editing your emails before you send them to our stupid show. 
but uh, Eric Kumar Rocker, we discussed earlier. Obviously, we talked about when he was drafted. Um, had a, you know, following show where it was obviously discussed what happened with Kumar Rocker not signing with the Mets. Um, the biggest problem we have answering this question is, of course, that um, anything we've heard about his medical situation, um, as well sourced it might be, is still kind of speculation. We don't really know what's going on with him, but. Um, it's more likely that you would that info on that is leaking from the Mets because right. it's justifying their reason to move on. So we don't know how bad anything is, and so it's hard. To, I, I mean, honestly, I'd prefer he takes the year off because I think you know, at some level, something's wrong. I don't think, as much as the Mets kind of screwed this up in a few ways, I don't think the Mets didn't want to sign him when they drafted him. I, I, I don't think the Mets made up a medical problem. I don't think he's a hundred percent healthy. Right. Um, yeah, we just don't know the severity of this problem. And so honestly, I, I, I just think I do, and I think he's probably going to just shut it down this year. So if you look at him either shutting it down or having a very conservatively managed workload because he doesn't end up going anywhere and he just throws in like indoor facilities and off a mound and controlled environments. And, and important to note that Boris has his own facility. There right. is a Boris facility in, in, in Southern California where Kumar Walker can, can work out with, with top trainers and all the technology and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think you can look at that in an investment in his long-term health in a positive way, or you could look at him going somewhere and throwing con- consistently in a competitive environment as like, if, if, if that's what he did and he performed, I'd feel better about that than the what I'm perceiving to be the tip of some iceberg that is, exists if he does the controlled environment. So I'd rather have more information when I was making my decision as a GM. Mm-hmm. But like when you're the player and his advisors in that situation, you want to do what like obscuring that stuff is better for you, but creates risk for the people on the team side, basically. So like the answer to the question depends on he's, he's asking if we're a GM. So if I'm a GM, I'd feel better if he went somewhere and pitched and did well for a hundred innings. But like, that's definitely not what's going to happen. And I, and, I, yeah. I don't think it matters. I, I think anyone's not going to, it's going to care about what, you know, he has to go into the next draft, which is bullshit, but I don't want to get into that. Um, let's just stick with reality, which is he's going to be in next year's draft, right? Yeah. I don't think it matters what he does this year. I think it matters what he looks like next spring. If he, but if, if he went somewhere and just pitched normally in a competitive setting and showed no ill effects was just the, what the pitcher he was stuff wise in 2021. It would, it would be nothing but good. Does that eliminate the overarching like no. shadow of injury from no. your thinking on him? Okay, Not so then in the least. there's no upside to him doing it then. None. He should just look as his shit should look as good as it can possibly be, which it will be in like the bullpen basically for scouts. Yeah, and I wonder if he'll play somewhere in the spring, like in an indie league or something, um, which is not um, unprecedented for Boris clients re-entering the draft. Um, so I, I wonder if that's going to happen or if it'll just be pens, just announce pens. Hey, Kumar Rocker is throwing at the Boris Institute. Is he on, the combine on, bell on, cow? May, on May 20th. Oh, wow. That's right. We have a combine now. Is that just where he goes and, and shoves and MLB is super pleased about it because of the wow. attention that it brings to that event? 
That's a great thought. I never thought about that. That's yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's going to be a strange thing. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. And, and he got screwed and he should be allowed to sign with other teams because the Mets never made him an offer. But that's another story. Our next email comes from Miguel. Miguel says, I was listening to episode 25 and the discussion of how prospect or player rankings can be so different between public and internal team lists. As you eloquently discussed, teams have so much information about their own players. I don't know if I was eloquent, but I'll take it. I'm curious how different the lists are for players not in their systems. If a team made a top 300 list of prospects and you ignore the prospects in their own system, how different are those lists? And are there particular teams that are seen as similar to the public rankings and others that are really different? If you look at outlier team lists, lists that are dissimilar from either the public or average team list, are those the good teams or the bad teams? Has this significantly changed over the past few years, either more agreement or more teams going their own way? Um, it is it is a similar issue where I think uh, you know teams, prospect rankings of the other 29 teams are, are very, very, very different from what you might see in the public light. Um, and that does go back to information. Um, you know, right now... You know, we're living in a world where, um, and Eric and I can get this information at times on these players, but it's not um, public information. Um, things like trackman data and statcast kind of data and velocity, that stuff's still kind of hidden for the most part. You know, Eric has talked in the past about kind of the trick where you can see stuff from the Florida Complex Leagues and things like that, where, the, if, you know, if there's a statcast machine on, you can kind of... Um, backdoor your way into the StatCast system and get some data out of it. But, you know, data from things like the Eastern League, well, I don't know, whatever, the AA Northern League or whatever it is now, um, you know, from AA and AAA, like they have access to, to all the StatCast and all the video as well. Um, so they, they have a, a, an excess of information that the public does not have that generates these lists. And I think it's important to note that not every team maintains prospect lists for other teams um i, I know with the astros that that was not a thing that was done um it was more of a situation where we kind of just categorize players as as elite top 10 types in a normal system top 30 types in a normal system guys with some kind of redeeming quality and, and nps non-prospects and, and that was it and then you you do intense work once it was necessary um but even those, I think you'd be surprised how many guys that might be top 100s that would get a, yeah, more like a top 30 type um, and vice versa even. Um, but there is a huge information dissymmetry between the public and private uh, that doesn't exist in the big leagues. The big leagues, the information that we have on big league players is, is very close to what teams have. The information on minor league players still is well behind. I, there are yeah. reasons, without getting into it, there are reasons to think that at some point in the next um zero to 36 months that will change and a lot of this uh, information that teams get on the minor league players will also be something that enters the public sphere which would be um fantastic for people like me and eric but also fantastic for for people who listen to this podcast who love baseball um but for right now that that information difference does continues to create these these wildly different lists so yeah i guess the way i'd go about answering this question is to use in my experience, the way I'm learning that teams have differing opinions about specific players who aren't in their own system is as I'm shuttling around the top 100 list, basically, and asking people from different teams who's too high, too low, and who's missing. And you get some different answers oh, from yeah. people. It's amazing how many people say, oh, that guy's way too high. And 12, 12 minutes later, you talk to someone else, they say that guy's way too low. So 
for sure that there, there are differences team to team in the way they view individual players. A lot of it has to do uh, with what they value as like the hit tool, basically, and and how valuable they perceive that to to be, and uh, a, like an anticipatory driver of big league success. So like Miguel Vargas in the Dodgers system uh, is is a name that came to mind. Where there are some teams that thought coming into this year he should just have been in the top 100 mm. and others who see like a first baseman without power who's you know like James Loney but not as good defensively like type of player right um and i would say that the the players for which there is a bigger gap from what the teams have and what we have on the public is just guys who on the hit tool they have a binary no on the hit tool so like uh, Estevan Floreal, mm. who performs and has gigantic tools, but especially model-driven teams will just be like, no, this guy can't hit. Can't hit. So yep. even though it's like eight arm, six raw, seven run, and has performed statistically in in the low minors, that this is just a no. He's striking out 33% of the time in high A, and so it's just highly likely that this guy will not be anything at all. Right. Um, so there are some teams who are identifying that type of player earlier now. So Wildered Patino in the, the D-back system is one where uh, he blew up in 2019 AZL. A bunch of the amateur scouts who had just got done doing area codes and uh, you know other high school events just got done seeing eight 17 year old center fielders who had tools way worse than Patino's. And so they went in and saw this guy with like monster tools and he performed in the AZL, but basically the underlying data, what you're talking about, some of the stack casty stuff is showing like an unsustainable rate of chase and in zone swing and miss mm-hmm. such that like, even I, I stuffed him on the D-backs list a couple of years ago, and then my my instructs look in 2020 was, ooh, this guy has real swing and miss issues. Um, and now he's like barely hanging on already, even though right, he's still right. really young and has those kind of tools. Um, and so, yeah, like I would say that the, the guys who are swinging, there's a dude in the White Sox system whose name is escaping me because a couple guys on their complex have similar names. But they just promoted him to low A. And he's like 380. Like he's got like a 380 OBP and is slugging five something. But his peripherals are like 6% walks, 35% strikeouts. And like. It's unsustainable. It's not going to work. Yeah. So like avoid. I forget his name. I think it's Misael Gonzalez. One of, the, one of them is a shortstop I actually like. And the other one is a corner outfielder with no approach. And that's this guy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Like the, that type of player specifically. Uh, and then also the way we identify players, like the way Kevin and I identify players to then think and ask about and go see and then put on a list, the amount of time that takes compared to like a 50-game rolling batted ball profile that is feeding some model in a team system, it's like totally different. And we are just going to be late to the party on certain types of guys who are only uh, understood instantaneously by like an algorithm, basically. Um, there's going to be a lag in time. Uh, and so whatever that type of player is, and I'm not exactly sure, the swing changer, basically. Right. Um, we're going to be late to the party on and probably um, lower on relative to teams. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, it is something where, to be honest with you, like I, you know, first thing I look at a hitter is 
contact rate, chase rate, power. Yep. First three things every time. It's the first thing I'm going to look at every time. Big league pitching is just so good at exploiting a bad approach, which is why, uh, you know, Jose Adolis Garcia can do what he did for like two months and that's it. And who knows, like Luis Robert is crazy talented and still is going to be like frustrating in a way that like Carlos Gomez was. And like Juan Soto is as stable as can be because his feel for the zone is elite. Yeah. You know, like that guy's just going to crush forever. His feel for the zone is unbelievable. Right. And you feel about those guys consistently being good and also aging way better. And yet I was low on Soto as a prospect because he had the fewest he had a bunch of injuries. He had the fewest minor league games played for a guy to make his MLB debut since Alex Rodriguez. It's like A-Rod mm. played fewer games and then Soto, and that's that's the list. Well, I didn't know it was that few. Because um, he was hurt. And so, like, your approach in that small sample is harder to feel good about, especially when a bunch of it's come against rookie-level pitching. But at the same time, like, it's funny. Jesus Sanchez and Juan Soto, who's – are similar tools wise, like power wise, swing wise, body wise, bat speed, all that stuff. One of them has an elite approach. The one other has, one, one of them has a 35 approach. Right. And you go look at their GCL stat line from the same year. Like they became Boris, Boris clients the same summer because they were crushing the, the GCL and, you know, Salvador Sanchez was down there and saw them. Um, and so, yeah, like, uh, it's just amazing to watch those two guys sort of one of them is petered out and the other one's on a Hall of Fame career trajectory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Indistinguishable and, 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 this first summer they debuted here. Right. Contact rate, chase rate, power. Can you, know, you swing at good pitches? Do you hit them when you do swing? Do you hit them hard? It's not. It's fairly simple stuff sometimes. Yep. Um, next email comes from Michael. Michael says, when Eric commented on sliding Jason Dominguez Back into the 50 FB ranking, he noted the raw power was merely average at the Futures game. How did he come to that conclusion? Did he get that off the BP that he saw? Did, did he have exit velos from the BP to base that off of? What was it? Just from visually watching his BP. Uh, and then in the context of the Futures game, where like other guys with like Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty took BP too, and it looked a lot different, <laughs> mm -hmm. like putting balls out to like the concourse beyond the left field bleachers in Francisco Alvarez's case. And did, did you calibrate it to an 18 year old? No, it's big league average raw right now. Okay. Which again, for an 18 year old now for an 18 year old with zero room on the body. Right. That, that was my biggest concern was just like, he's gotten big yeah. and it's not in a way that I think is good. It's a way that is in a realm that I don't have previous. It is so outlierish in so many ways. It's like he's baseball Zion Williamson. He's he's Zion Williamson. Like I don't know who Zion Williamson is, dude. So Zion Williamson, <laughs> Zion Zion Williamson plays for the New Orleans Pelicans. This is part of why I don't know who he is. NBA. NBA player. So in high school, this guy was a human highlight reel as like a sophomore already. But you look at him and it's like, wow, this guy's six five and like 260. He's just a human bowling ball with an insane vertical leap. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have the typical like Giannis Antetokounmpo, the guy who plays for Milwaukee. Who, I know who that is. Okay. 
when he was 16, he was a string bean. And looks like he does now after, you know, like, but he had physical projection, basically. And Jason Dominguez is just like the Zion Williamson of, of baseball where he's built like he is. He got really big and strong, really fast. It didn't take away really from straight line speed that makes him a viable candidate, not a lock, but like a viable center field candidate. And he's got, it didn't detract from his like bat speed really from either side. But also he's 18 and he's built like this. So what is he going to look like when he's 25? Mm. And I don't really know. I don't think anybody really knows because it is so different now. Like Kevin Maiton did go, Kevin Maiton, it was not like Jason Dominguez gets into a gym to look the way he does. And when Kevin Maiton got very, very big, very quickly. He went to a Taco Bell. Right. And when like Brady Aiken was very big coming out of uh, right. TJ rehab, it was like, oh, this is maybe not good. Right. This isn't. I'm now sitting 94 to 97 all the time. Mass that he's added. It's what this is not good. Um, right. And Dominguez is is scuffling. Um, in low A, you know, he's hitting 230 something. He's got like two home runs and 20 something games. It's not like he's low in the world away or anything and i didn't slide him grade wise he just slid within the 50s mm. it just didn't look to me like meteoric rise superstar guy it still is just like hey this is a, a teenager with bigly average raw already which is impressive he's a switch hitter who's gonna s- stay up the middle maybe again like how the body develops might dictate some of that stuff and it's it's still a gray area yeah um but it's like switch hitter with precocious power up the middle like still a great prospect um, I'm going to date myself here. Do you remember Angel Salome? <sighs> no. Wait, wait, wait. The Brewers catcher? Yeah, very. there you go. So Angel Salome was a, a catching prospect in the Brewers system in the in the mid-2000 the mid aughts. Um, and I, I, he could rake. Like, he was a 300 hitter every year in the minors. So he was much shorter than Dominguez, but he was like 5'7", 220. And just when you said awesome. bowling, when you said bowling ball, I thought of Angel Salome, and it, it it worked against him defensively, and 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 he, I actually think he got to the big leagues for a cup of coffee, but um, like I couldn't believe how roundy big Dominguez was. Yeah, it's not again, it's not bad. Like he looks the way he does because of work he's doing to add strength, not because he's let himself go. Um, but he is a gigantic. Like, I've never seen a baseball player this age who's this muscular already. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Like, but now it is, it depends how you look at, like, what the the thing you don't know about is going to, like, how you value it, basically. So, like, Alexander Vargas in the Yankee system, too. Switch hitting shortstop. He, he's, like, uh, he looks like the typical... 19, 20 year old baseball player who like grows up to be Francisco Lindor or something like that. Like there's room for that on his frame still as he ages. And he's like a plus defensive shortstop again, like switch hitter who's performing in rookie ball. So like, I just, there's so much stability in his ability to play shortstop really well that like he'd have to be really his, his early career performance would have to be, wrong basically like some <laughs> right, right, something right. about it to be that made it fool's gold for him not to be a solid everyday big league shortstop at some point and has ceiling way way above that so like i just value that 
stability with a similar ceiling, in my opinion, more mm-hmm. than I do Dominguez now at this point. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I have big questions on, on Jason but Dominguez at this point. I did ask somebody. I read the email before we recorded, and I asked somebody what Jason Dominguez's max exit velo has been in 2021. Do you want to guess? Do you want to set like what the over-under would be, basically? Max. So this is the this max. Is biggest shot, right? Yeah. Um, I think so. I don't know. They might be one of those teams that like sure, they missed the a couple. top three right. off. Yeah. Um, 108.2. It's 112. That's, that's hard. That's pretty hard for someone his age. Yes. So maybe I'm wrong. Like, I might also just be wrong. Yeah, but, but same thing. Like, Max, lopping him off is a good move. Um, I always like the, if you can do it, top 5%. So, yeah. like, the average of their top 5%. Because all sorts of guys can just, like, swing out their ass and hit a ball hard. And so like, it's be able to consistently do it. Um, our final email comes from Bitcoin Awards. And Bitcoin Awards writes, congratulations, you have been selected as a winner in the zero ticket Bitcoin jackpot. Attached to this email is our official notification letter for your perusal. Signed, Bitcoin. So this is the last episode of the podcast, folks, because I have been selected as a winner in the zero ticket Bitcoin jackpot. Bitcoin has written me and letting me know this. Um, It says attached as an email notification, but it's just a link to some website. I should totally click on this, right? Yeah, it seems. I th- let me ask my dad. Hold Feels on. Like- <laughs> let me ask my dad to see. If he seems to be good at parsing what the internet feeds him. So, is your dad into the crypto? No, <laughs> I mean maybe he is, but I don't, and I don't know about it. <laughs> so again, send us emails. Chin music at fangrass.com. We will read yours on the air and we'll talk about them. Eric, it's time to catch up with you. You live. In Tempe, Arizona, which is part of the greater Phoenix metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that, um, obviously, you and I talk many times, not when we're podcasting. And often you tell me, I'm going to this, I'm going to that, because you live in Phoenix. You can do that. And there's there's mm-hmm. 15 complexes there, and there's complex ball going on. And, you know, obviously, you have big league stuff and all sorts of good things. Um, what have you been doing? So, yeah, I did, um, I did area codes in San Diego like a, I guess would have been a little over a week ago now, uh, which is for folks who don't know, it's like a regional, they're a regional high school okay. scout driven all-star teams that get put together and they, eight of them come to Southern California usually uh, to play like a, a showcase. So and these are studs, Erica games. This is big. This, yeah. is dude, this is dudes. Yeah. It's really good high school baseball um, this year. And, it's it's fifty fifty whether the two events that occur in Southern California uh, mesh nicely with one another or not. So you have the area codes which take place over the course of about a week, typically in Long Beach. Although they were at the University of San Diego this year because Long Beach State uh, is subject to California's COVID related guidelines, whereas University of San Diego is a private institution and is not. So. They moved it from Long Beach to San Diego this year. It's the second consecutive year that it's not in Long Beach. Right. And like with that came all sorts of, you know, I'd done area codes in the same place every year for as long as I've lived here. And so, uh, you know, like going to a new stadium, although one I've been to, and spending between 12 and 14 hours a day at the ballpark, uh, you know, like how you get food changes. Like you're going to make mistakes that cost you time at the field or, yeah. you know, time in the sun was the big one. Like San Diego has no 
shade. So like teams were allowed to bring pop-up tents to set up around the concourse of the stadium uh, to like shade their scouts, but there's only so much room right behind home plate. Uh, so, it, you know, it was like a complex thing. So I did uh, area code stuff. You and I have to sit and talk about the next couple drafts and updating the lists. Did, did uh, you, was there a, would, would you call it a normal scouting turnout for that? Yeah. Yeah. It was packed full of, full of folks. Um, you know, some teams even brought like analysts along to experience the grind of mm-hmm. an event like this, where it's four BPs in the morning and then a couple of games after a 45 minute lunch break. And then it's that for two days and then five games a day for the next couple of days. Wow. That's a long one. Yeah. Um, I was thinking like, like a long Dominican showcase day is like, um, BP's infield lunch game game. That's a lot. But yeah. Man, five. Ooh. And towards the end of the day, like, you know, managing, managing your, yourself and your attention level, like it's its own it's oh, yeah. a thing. Like it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, difficult thing that everyone who's part of the scouting industry, like has to go through. Um, and like it, try to improve at. So did that and then yeah, came home and have been doing complex level stuff and a couple big league games. The Phillies are in town. So I went to see uh, them. Like well, as soon as we're done here, I'll go see Bumgarner and Wheeler um, and then hit an ACL game tonight. I have a hard time calling it the ACL uh, and just yeah. keep calling it the ACL. It's, I just call it the complex league and you're safe. Here's uh, one for you. So I was at the Cubs and Rockies game the other night and complex but, league. Yeah, complex league. And Benny Montgomery is in the Colorado lineup. Okay. Yeah, first he draft pick. Got done being a top ten draft pick. Uh Kevin Alcantara, who the Cubs got from the Yankees in the Rizzo deal. So the, the 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 small forward. Is in the Cubs lineup. Uh so is Owen Casey, who they got from the Padres in the Darvish deal, Canadian oh, high school a, outfielder man, from a couple years ago. Fun day. Reggie Preciado in the in the lineup. If you had to guess the way most scouts would pref that group of four guys right now, how would you how would you do it? Okay, let's do it. Let, let's run through them again. Benny Montgomery. Benny Montgomery, who was just a top ten pick. Y- yep. Kevin, Kevin Alcantara. O- Owen Casey and Reggie Preciado. I think that's my order. So, just having seen that group on the same field together for a little while now, especially Casey and Preciado. I think I would pref it the way it's, it is on the board, which is basically Alcantara, Preciado, Montgomery, and then Casey. Yeah. And then I think most scouts would pref it Alcantara and Casey in some order at the top. Just because Casey has hit all spring. Yeah. And then Preciado and Montgomery in some order, both just with high risk because Preciado's approach we're learning is flawed. And the pro scouts do not like Benny Montgomery's swing so far over like the course of about a week, basically. Um, But yeah, like in my opinion, just the physical tools package watching. The thing that struck me was comparing that of Montgomery and Alcantara like Montgomery having just been a top 10 pick and as like a 19 year old 
with Alcantara, who's bigger, more traditionally projectable, just has a more picturesque swing, a, a more prototypical big league swing and better bat speed and just more looseness. Like it's not even close mm. that I'm taking Alcantara over Montgomery again, who was just like a top 10 pick. That's, that's good. I, 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 I talked to someone with the Cubs about Alcantara um, last week and they talked about how um, there's some things they want to work with on a swing, but it's a really good starting point. Yeah. From, from a frame and bat speed perspective, like this is pretty ridiculous actually. And it's the same sort of thing that's like, you know, Luis Matos and Marco Luciano and, you know, they don't become the players that they're becoming, the prospects that they've become mm. without that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like Ronald Acuna doesn't become Ronald Acuna without swinging how he does. Like right. that level of explosiveness is what enables him to be incredible. But also Alexander Canario is like, you know, there are lots of guys with this level of Jorge Alfaro exists too, right? Like, yeah, no, exactly, and you know, and that's a it's a great example actually. Like Alfaro has incredible power, and and it all looks and it's uh, you know go back to what we talked about when we look at hitters first. Like his contact and chase rates are huge issues, and always have been. He's never adjusted. But it's just fascinating to be able to make the post draft apples to apples comparisons with the Latin American kids for sure, who, because of the market that they're coming from. The way our like subcultures' attention interfaces with their prospectum is different, uh, but like it's cool to see all these guys on the field together at the same time after the draft because you really get to just be like, look at this guy who's barely twenty, and this guy who just went in the top ten who's nineteen, and who would you rather have? And it's not even close in my opinion that like this guy the Cubs got has gargantuan upside when you just watch these guys move their bodies on a baseball field. Was that at the Cubs place or was it at Salt River? That was at Sloan. And the yeah. Sloan, they do play in the big park, you said. Yeah, they mostly they do. To start the year off, they were on the backfield, but like I think it had to do with maintenance of the turf in the stadium, and now right. they're, they're in the stadium now. And um, how many scouts were there? <sighs> there was... There was a minor league video intern taking it upon themselves to be there and just take notes, like doing advance work basically for the ACL team, which, so that's not a scout, but that's someone there who I met. Right. who's an impressive person. And then uh, one, two, three, four plus me and the video intern. Okay. Um, and then like, I'll go see Harry Ford and Edwin Arroyo debut tonight. And I bet it's going to be. About that many plus a little more. Right. And the Cubs were kind of hardcore on extended stuff in terms of people being able to go. Um, they were limited. Yeah, but now, were, now, that, now that Sloan, they're opening up. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they did extended stuff in Sloan. They had two extended teams and one of them was in Sloan and the other would be on the backfield. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a no-go for me to enter Sloan. Uh, had I maybe had a cozier connect who would have just been like, here, come in, you know, then maybe I could have gone in that seemed to happen elsewhere, which is fine. It happens. Yep. Uh, but it was just logically ridiculous that Sloan was full of people during spring training. But, uh, but Chad McClanahan's mom was watching her kid play for the Brewers, like through the fence, fence on a ladder that she bought. Jesus. You know, like it's a, the taxpayers pay for the stadium dudes. Like, 
we can distance. It's okay. Yeah. It's a giant spring training stadium. Chad McClanahan's mom is there. <laughs> it's me <laughs> and Bill and Chad McClanahan's mom. Uh, but whatever. Like, it's over now. So, so what uh, else is going on? I mean, it's, it's it, we were talking uh, on the phone a few days ago, and it's like it's August 19th. Yeah. And, and like you can measure weeks where it's like time to start thinking about prospect lists again. Yeah. Yep. Um, winding down travel. I'll have like an intense couple of things still here the next few weeks and then be done and just personal travel though. Yeah. And then hang out until fall league basically. Um, When's fall league start? I think, is it the, I think it's, it's in October and runs th- closer to Thanksgiving than a typical year, it sounds like. Yeah, okay. October 13th, I think, is the date that's coming to mind. Okay. Um, I hope that it overlaps with Instructs and that you can come down so that we can, like, tag team that overlap. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I during think Instructs I'm... and Fall League where, they yeah. can, like, on a Saturday you can triple up and do Instructs at 10 a.m. and then yeah, two Fall League games. Yeah. Uh, and just, like, to hang out. And yeah, for be sure. in nice weather and see a lot of baseball. Um, yeah, we have a good time. And yeah, there's something else around that that I'm going to talk to you about off the air. I've been I, playing uh, a lot of like online Magic the Gathering. That's part of what brought that like that question I had about the the ML, MLB just eventually leaning on the fact that the laundry is what sells tickets because that's what's happened in Magic. Like it's different because now I'm confused. <laughs> Magic has eliminated their pro tour because the thing that makes them money is people playing the game, not watch, not people watching the best players play the game. But doesn't watching the best people play the game generate interest in the game and therefore people want to play it and buy the cards? That's the, that's the, the thing that makes sense to me and a lot of people who are upset at their decision to do this. But it's not the decision that they calculated and decided made made like actual practical sense for them. Like they they decided to eliminate this and just focus on getting people to pay them money through playing the game itself. And as like gambling becomes a bigger part of baseball, that is a thing that I think might encroach. Oh. Like if the point becomes you betting on the game. Mm. Then does it matter? You don't care about the players anymore. Do I have to be in awe of Mike Trout anymore to be interested? Or is it just me betting on the game that becomes the thing that draws more people to to the experience? So I have questions. Okay. So you play Magic the Gathering online. You play this with an – I assume this is all electronic. You're playing this with an app. Yeah. You fire up Magic the Gathering and connect you to another player and you play a game. So are you paying money for electronic cards like you would in like a Hearthstone world? You can if you play enough or if you play, there's a certain amount that you can play where you're basically playing for free, which is the amount that I play mm-hmm. where I'm earning fake video game money through that you can buy packs of cards with Chivos. Right. Yeah. yeah Hearth, that Hearthstone's I like, similar. I, okay. I got, I got off Hearthstone when there was just too many cards and I was like, I, I'm not going to maintain this. Um, but yeah, I just kind of fire it up to like, it's a thing that I'll spend 15 minutes doing Rather yeah, than just scrolling right. through Twitter, just gonna clear your head. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. But there are sometimes when I want to, like, you know, do do something com- actually competitive on there, like every couple of weeks. And sometimes, yeah, you'll have to like fork over five bucks or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. You have five dollars. 
yeah, but it is it is just interesting that you know to map that to what is it might have eventually happened. It's if there are going to be unforeseen uh, consequences of normalizing gambling, which I don't have like an ethical problem with. Yeah, I still don't have a problem with it. I know that makes me an asshole, and I just I don't. just worry about the ease of it. The sudden mm. ease of it at your finger, like literally at your fingertips from your couch when you're like yeah, inebriated. I, yeah, but that's, you know, it's funny you just said like when you're inebriated, but the thing is, it's like, it's it's, it's just, it, for me, it's a vice and, and like, uh, you talk about like the ease. I mean, I right now can put on my shoes and, and walk within three minutes to a liquor store and buy liquor. That's ease, isn't it? But isn't it, isn't the level... Think about how Amazon became what it was. Like the gap between going to a store to buy something and just clicking on it instantaneously. It was a big enough gap to lead to. Okay, well, I can I can also like go hit a few buttons and I can have liquor brought to me. Of course, right. That's different then. Someone physically has to take it to your door or whatever. Mm. But it's it's there's still a gap between. Your DraftKings app and yeah. that, though. I've still never done it. Like, I still, I, I told so like, the only time I've ever been on sports was when the winter meetings were in Vegas, like in 06 or something. And a friend of mine who's a degenerate gambler um, told me to put some money on a college basketball game, and I did so. That's the only time I've ever gambled on a sporting event. Do you think that bodies, like the, maybe the BBWAA, should get out ahead of potential problems with this and legislate against it in? Like no. They're... So you, all right. So I, if you, I, no, because it, it's, it's. Do you think it's ethical for you or I to to go even to bet on like over under where is Benny Montgomery going to get picked in the draft? Do you think that if if there's a draft no. prop over under? No, for you and I, no. Are you saying? Are you saying? So you're saying get in front of it as dude, far as having allowing the yes. writers to engage in it? That I'm yes. fine with. Yes, yes, for sure. I thought you were talking about like having them being able to write about it. Oh no, no, no! no to, I'm enga- about to engage in it, yeah, I, yeah, I get it. Yes, because they'll, yes, because it's there's an insider trading aspect to it. But this is like one of those hey hadn't thought about mm-hmm. that all of a sudden is very relevant. And, and I also understand like the concerns about like um, you know just the the uh, kind of the partnerships, if you will. Like it's it's you know are you. And if you write for MLB.com, if you're at MLB.com, is a bad thing because they're already compromised in a way. But like if you are a writer for The Athletic and The Athletic does have a gambling vertical, right? Um, like, can you be yeah. can you be critical? Because then you're being critical of something Athletic's covering in a positive light and trying to make money from. Yeah. Yep. I hadn't thought about that, but that's true too. Um, the, the way, like if there's a DraftKings or a FanDuel sponsored show on ESPN or Fox Sports 1 or whatever. Or major or MLB Network. Has MLB one. Network, yeah. Uh, do you trust, like, does DraftKings want people giving you the best possible advice? You know what I mean? Of like, they not. really don't. <laughs> so It just amazes me. And I, 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 I ended up watching, like, 15 Minutes 1 show because I, re- I was just watching, I said, the network on, and I really thought it was just, like, a segment, like, hey, we're going to go to our draft annoying draft guy, our annoying gambling guys. But it was, like, a whole show. It just amazes me how sure they are of everything they're saying. Like this is this is your slam dunk. You got to play this. Like it's what nothing is. Uh, 
yeah, Dunning-Kruger effect and all that stuff, I suppose. But this is the interesting thing where magic intersects with this again is for the longest time, Wizards of the Coast, which is what prints and, and makes Magic the Gathering and designs it, uh, they could not acknowledge that there was a secondary market for the cards. That, uh, you know, some of the cards, especially older ones, either because they're rare and collectible or because they're scarce and an integral part of, like, the competitive Certain scene, strategies. Yeah. Like, they can get pretty expensive. They can range from you want to put together, like, a certain deck and it can cost you, like, a couple thousand bucks. Jesus. You can – they could not acknowledge that there was a secondary market for their product because it would basically be acknowledging that opening a pack of magic cards is akin to like a scratch-off ticket. Uh, and like it becomes a whole different entity legally when you acknowledge and participate in that as the entity that prints the cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now, again, like if I go to my local card shop and say, hey, Pete, uh, tomorrow... I'm going to have run a piece about how good Tyler Soderstrom's look this spring. What, what do you, do you have any of his Bowman chromes lying around before that runs? Like mm. shouldn't be doing that stuff. So, right. But I think that there are just little nuggets of this that you and I can't even conceive of because it's not our like micro world uh, that, yeah, like other writers are looking at and seeing like, Oh, what do I do here? They're hopefully asking themselves if they should do it. But it seems like there was a piece that ran it, the, um, ah, shit. Where did it run? Columbia School of Journalism, I think, did had a piece mm-hmm. that's just like, yeah, like there are other writers who have just openly admitted to doing this stuff before the NFL draft, specifically the prop right. bet over unders for where guys were going to go. You talk to a player's agent, he tells you, yeah, Jalen Waddle's going to go six to Miami, and his over under of where he's going to get picked is like nine or whatever. You're going to take the under and clean up, right? And so, yeah, like, yeah, that stuff's coming. So you're saying it's if, like, just, if you were a beat writer and you found out before it got out there that, you know. What, Madison Bumgarner is going to be Jake, scratched. Jake DeGrom, like a guy who you know is going to – Jake DeGrom's getting scratched and they're going to go with a pen game. Right. Right. And the, you have the means now because the thing is literally in your pocket to do it to before you send a tweet. Hit a button. And, what, and whatever, like – Fuck the tweet at that point because whatever weird dopamine hit you get from that isn't worth, you know, like rather rather than go to Twitter right away to be the first to report it. Make some money. Make some money. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, maybe the BBWA should get in front of that. They haven't to this point, I don't think, have they? Not that I know of. I don't, I doubt it. It's so it's it's hard. It's not like criticism of them. No. The world just evolves this fast, you know? It's so hard for anybody to wrangle it. It just sure. evolves everything changes really fast. It's time for a moment of culture, Eric. What do you got? I made a funny cake this week. You made a what? So Wait, wait, say say that word again. Funny cake. Okay. <laughs> this is an old Pennsylvania Dutch recipe. And the point of it, it's like <laughs> it's a pie, it's a pie shell in which rests. Wait, I should google this. Yeah, there are more recipes for it now than I expected there would be. I have one from my Nana. Um 
which didn't work, which is why this is the moment of culture. But um, but it's like a okay. layer of fudgy chocolate at the if bottom. You're Goog- the- if you're Googling this, don't just Google funny cakes. You're just going to get pictures of funny cakes. Google Pennsylvania funny cake. That's good advice. Um, sometimes it'll be called like a Mennonite funny cake. Uh, but it is from like, you know, Amish Mennonite, Pennsylvania Dutch. Yeah, all the recipes, uh, all the recipes say Pennsylvania Dutch right, funny cake. Or some version of that. Uh, and yeah, like the point of it is that That's it's so just, good. it's pie crust. <laughs> yeah, it is good. Pie crust, fudgy chocolate layer, and then uh, like a layer of like a, a plain muffin type of cake. It's not like the most or as luscious. They, or as they would say on the Great British Baking Show, sponge. Right, sponge. sponge. Beautiful sponge. <laughs> that guy's so secure. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I can't believe his last name is actually Hollywood. I thought for sure that he'd change it to Hollywood. To anyway. look like that and be named Paul Hollywood is a hell of a combo, isn't it? Uh, yeah, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> structure. This is what I sit around and do while we watch that show. Um, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, the point of it is that the viscosity of the chocolatey fudge and the cake itself are such that you put the layer of cake into the pie shell first and then you dump the chocolatey layer which ends up at the bottom in on top of the cake layer so it kind of marbles a little bit throughout the cake but also ends up during baking sinking to the bottom yeah uh and my oven must have like a slight tilt because the fudge ended up flooding one end of the <laughs> pie shell and then not in the other. And so like I had an uneven, I put a four on it, uh, funny cake. So I look forward to, to going again, you know, crust from scratch and all that. Like I, I take the time to, to do it. Um, There's something new every day. I'd never heard of a funny cake. Yeah. This is one that people were like, I've heard of shoe fly pie. And it's similar to that where it's basically a cake mm. in a pie shell. Right. Um, but yeah, it's easy. It's pretty easy to bring together and looks great. Yeah, it's good. It's good. But I have to figure out what's going on with the oven. The oven's got a little tilt, it seems. <laughs> I'm going to talk about a TV show. And uh, speaking of feeling uh, good about yourself and confident in who you are, I'm going to talk about a show on Netflix called Valeria. And so I will admit this and openly admit it, I think Sex in the City is a good show or was a good show. I understand that you can have issues with it that are understandable. It's about, you know, white people with no problems. Yes, you're right. It also is very well written and a good and accurate representation of relationships and how people think. So Valeria, I would, it, my, 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 uh, my one slide paragraph would just be, this is Sex and the City in Spain. So they're in Madrid. Okay. Um, it's on Netflix. It's also very well written. It's very clever. It's really nicely done. You connect to all the people in it. It's also... Um, if you, it's, if you have a T, a, a, a TV you like and a good picture, it's really gorgeous. It's like, it's, it's, it's Almodovar influenced, like, like super, okay. super saturated colors and everything looks really glorious. And you're also in Spain and Spain looks utterly nice, lovely, warm, right? Light. Yeah. It's really great. It's a, it's a great looking show. And also just like a nice, a very nicely, it's, it's an easy show to watch. It's a, just a nice thing. It's always fun to hear also hear. European Spanish with all the 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 th sounds for the s's, and um, 
it's just like an absolutely pleasant and, and we need more pleasant programming it's nothing deep you're not gonna you know you're not gonna get really worked out it's just a perfectly pleasant well-written well-executed show that I, it's very simple it's spanish sex in the city it's four women experiencing life in madrid my context for sex in the city which like i haven't seen all of i know like greg barrent who wrote some of it maybe mm-hmm. um has like a podcast that I've listened to in the past and like does stand up. But I was a pre and like pubescent boy when Sex in the City was a thing. <laughs> and so when I saw it on TV, I wasn't thinking about if like how well it was written. I was just hoping that like Kim Cattrall would fuck somebody during that right. episode. <laughs> I'm 13. Right. <laughs> Um, it's ten thirty. There are still days like nothing's on, and, and and my wife will fire up HBO Max and find an episode she likes. It's still good. It's still, I guess, I'm bringing it back. Who knows if that'll be good or not? Probably not, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to bring this. Stuff it, back. Yeah, it still holds up. It's very well. It was incredibly well executed. Has anything that has come back in that way that you have watched? What have you felt the obligation to engage with? And has anything satisfied you? I'll start. X Files. <laughs> I said I didn't watch the first no. one. Okay. So I don't know. I can think of musical things. Like I um I just funny I was just talking about this show a couple of days ago. Um, but at some point in the late eighties, um, the legendary punk band the Buzzcocks got together and they were touring, playing all of their great songs from the late seventies, right? And my friend was like, you're going to go see the Buzzcocks. And I was like, this is going to be, I don't want to do this. This is, I, this is going to be depressing. I don't want to do this. Um, and it was phenomenal. It was great. Um, I, so I can think of like musical things I've seen. And I also think it can be like musical disasters. Like the, like the Pixies reboot has been a disaster. Oh, that's right. right? Yeah. What happened uh, with the bass player? Which one? <sighs> the one who sounded most like Kim Deal. Who I was like, oh, this sounds good. And then something happened. Yeah, it was very short lived. There's been a couple, I, like for a while. She, she was in another band too. Like for a while, Kim Kim Shattuck was playing with them, who I think's great. That's she was it. she was in the Muffs, and um, um, yeah, she died. Um, I can't remember. She had it's a boy. It's something. It was very something really depressing. She had ALS. That was it. Oh. Um, and um, and she's awesome. Like she was. I played the Muffs on the old podcast, and um, but. Uh, yeah, but like there's like reboots that late are always weird. Like I understand like coming back into it would be like it's also like the, 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 I, I was flipping through movies trying to find something. And I forgot that there was a Caddyshack two that was made like ten years later. Yeah, you know it's just hard to do it when it's no longer of the time. Um, and he just died recently too. Who's that? The guy who starred in Caddyshack two, Jackie Mason. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And anyway. Bob Stack from Unsolved Mysteries in Caddyshack 2. I've never seen it. I just kind of, I kind of forgot, forgot it even exists. I've heard nothing but bad things. I don't even really think that the first Caddyshack, like Caddyshack and Animal House don't really hold up anymore. Maybe they're like I think songs Animal, I've heard enough. I think that Animal I House is really funny. I always thought Caddyshack just kind of had its moments is okay. Caddyshack's not really a cohesive movie. It's just a bunch of like Chevy skits. Chase being funny on his own and Bill Murray <laughs> yeah. having a chance to like riff and it's do skits. things. Yeah, yeah, it's just a bunch of sketches patched together. Just, just like this show. Rodney Dangerfield's maybe aged the best. No question. No question. That stuff still is funny. Like, 
not Always. just from Caddyshack, but just him, just his one-liners are still, they're funny still. Every man's got his tail of woe, but in life there's more woe than tail. Hey, I'll tell you. Do you do other impressions? Yeah. <laughs> we'll save the Eric Longenhagen impression hour for another show. Um, but for you now, you hear I, them on the phone. I, I do. They're they're rarely good. Um, <laughs> and I think we're done here, Eric. I can't thank you enough for coming on and rambling for what's going to be a long one, folks. So if you got to this far, thanks for listening. If you have an email, you can send it to us. Chinmusic at fangraphs.com. If you want to be a listener of the week, you can email chinmusic at fangraphs.com. They all end up in my inbox. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone.